This meeting is being recorded. Okay, good afternoon and welcome to the San Francisco Planning Commission hearing for Thursday, January 26, 2023. To enable public participation, SFGov TV is broadcasting and streaming this hearing live. And we will receive public comment for each item on today's agenda. Each speaker will be allowed up to three minutes. When you have 30 seconds remaining, you will hear a chime indicating your time is almost up. When your allotted time is reached, I will announce that your time is up and take the next person queued to speak. We will take public comment from persons in City Hall first and then open up the remote access line. For those persons participating via WebEx, please raise your hand when public comment is called for the item you are interested in speaking to. For those persons calling in to submit their testimony, please follow these instructions carefully. Uh, you'll need to call uh, area code 415-655-0001 and then enter access code 2491-866-4539 and then press pound. You will then need to enter the password for today's hearing. It is 0126, then press pound again. At this point, you should be able to listen to the hearing live. Uh, you'll need to wait for the item you're interested in speaking to and for public comment to be announced. To comment, you must enter star three to raise your hand. Once you raise your hand, you will hear a prompt that you have raised your hand to ask a question. Please wait to speak until the host calls on you. You'll need to wait for your turn, and when you hear the prompt that you are being asked to unmute yourself, to unmute press star six, you must enter, enter star six. When you hear that you are unmuted, that is your indication to begin speaking. And commissioners, just for your uh, knowledge, starting today, SFGov TV is gonna be uh, helping us out with those remote callers. Um, best practices are to call from a quiet location and, and please mute the volume on your television or computer. For those attending in person, please line up on the screen side of the room. Please speak clearly and slowly and if you care to state your name for the record. Finally, I'll ask that we all silence any mobile devices that may sound off during these proceedings. And at this time, I'd like to take roll. Commission President Tanner. Here. Commission Vice President Moore. Here. Commissioner Braun. Here. Commissioner Diamond. Here. Commissioner Imperial. Here. Commissioner Koppel. Here. And Commissioner Ruiz. Here. Thank you, Commissioners. First on your agenda is consideration of items proposed for continuance at the time of issuance. And uh, currently, there are no items proposed to be continued, so we can move on to your consent calendar. All matters listed here under constitute your consent calendar are considered to be routine by the Planning Commission and may be acted upon by a single roll call vote of the Commission. There will be no separate discussion of this item unless a member of the Commission, the public, or staff so requests, in which event the matter shall be removed from the consent calendar and considered as a separate item at this or a future hearing. Item 1, case number 2020-001314, COA at 110 Franklin Street, a conditional use authorization. Members of the public, this would be your opportunity to request that this matter be removed from the consent calendar. Calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, public comment on your consent calendar is closed and item one is now before you, commissioners. Commissioner Braun. Move to approve. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to Approve item one under your consent calendar, Commissioner Braun. Aye. Commissioner Ruiz. Aye. Commissioner Diamond. Aye. Commissioner Imperial. Aye. Commissioner Koppel. Aye. Commissioner Moore. And Commission President Tanner. Aye. So move, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously seven to zero. 
placing us on under commission matters for item two, the land acknowledgement. Thank you. Today, Commissioner Ruiz will be sharing our land acknowledgement. The Planning Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and rel relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community, and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. Thank you. Item three, consideration of adoption draft minutes for January 12th, 2020. That uh, must be a typo, it's 2023, not 2022. Uh, members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on the minutes. Seeing no request to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed and the minutes are not before you. Commissioner Imperial. Move to adopt the minutes. Second. Thank you, commissioners. On that motion to adopt the minutes, Commissioner Braun. Aye. Commissioner Ruiz. Aye. Commissioner Diamond. Aye. Commissioner Imperial. Aye. Commissioner Koppel. Aye. Commissioner Moore. And Commission President Tanner. Aye. So move, commissioners. That motion passes unanimously seven to zero and place us on item four, commission comments and questions. Commissioner Moore. I have a question. Uh, we are executing the housing element, we will have to look for sites that are opportunity sites for land banking uh, today. And on February 23rd, we have parking lots by where we are extending uh, the use of parking for another five years. Is the department able to look at these sites prior to asking the commission to guarantee these extensions? And what criteria are we using to do so? So do you want us to, <clears throat> excuse me, include that in our analysis when we talk about those? Yeah, I about think those? it would be interesting to, for the commission to understand because we're here to support consent, yeah. but without having really your metrics to understand why you're doing it and what is, what is the background, including extending it to, for more than five years would be of interest. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, Commissioner Moore. Uh, commissioners, I just want to first um, start on two kind of not necessarily planning related notes. First, Happy Lunar New Year to everyone, and hopefully folks are out celebrating the Year of the Rabbit um, and enjoying themselves. Um, and perhaps on a more serious note, I myself was in Monterey Park actually on Saturday um, in the daytime enjoying the Lunar New Year Festival, and then that evening um, there was the shooting at the dance hall there. So I just want us to take a moment to recognize the victims of the shooting in Monterey Park in in San Mateo County and Half Moon Bay and also in Oakland, um, not the way we want to start out the year, um, but certainly something that's present in our community and our society. So I just want us to pause just to take a few moments of silence in honor of the victims as well as the survivors, their families and their friends, um, and really our entire community that's kind of suffering at this time. So if we'll just pause for a moment, I appreciate it. Thank you all for taking that time. And with that, I don't see any other commissioner comments or questions. Very good, commissioners. Uh, that will place us under department matters for item five, director's announcements. Uh, no announcements today. Item six, review of past events at the Board of Supervisors. 
I have no report from the Board of Appeals and the Historic Preservation Commission did not meet yesterday. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Aaron Starr, Manager of Legislative Affairs. Um, at the Land Use Committee hearing this week, supervisors considered Supervisor Dorsey's ordinance that would principally permit nighttime entertainment on properties fronting Folsom Street between 7th Street and Division Street and properties fronting 11th Street between Howard and Division Street. Commissioners, you've heard this concept twice. The most recent was on January 12th when you voted to recommend approval with um, some clarifying amendments. At this week's hearing, Supervisor Dorsey made a request uh, to add the clarifying amendments. However, the city attorney did deem those to be substantive and required the ordinance to be continued one more week. Next, the committee uh, heard Supervisor Peskin's ordinance that would facilitate the opening of by right within the Polk Street Neighbor Commercial District. Um, this, is, this ordinance would essentially allow three things. Um, first, it would allow the expansion of existing general grocery use, replacing a legacy business grocery store to exceed 4,000 square feet. Um, it would allow a storefront merger of a general grocery if it is uh, related to replacing a legacy business grocery store only if the expansion is into a building on the same lot. And it would remove the conditional use requirement if replacing a legacy business general grocery store with a general grocery store use only if the existing grocery store is expanded into a building on the same lot. Planning Commission heard this item on December 1st of last year and unanimously recommended approval with the following modifications. One, to principally permit general grocery uses up to 5,000 square feet in all neighbor commercial districts. Allow storefront mergers for all, property, all proposed general grocery uses up to 5,000 square feet. Eliminate the conditional use requirement for removing a legacy business general grocery store if it's to be replaced with another general grocery. And additionally, staff read into the record that the draft ordinance would be amended to include Section 302 findings that were missing from the ordinance. Our understanding was that Supervisor Peskin's office was open to making these recommended amendments that would have made this ordinance more widely applicable. However, during the hearing, uh, President Peskin noted that he did not have the resources to conduct outreach to the rest of the city and would not be taking any of the commission's recommended modifications. He also emphasized the desire to move this item quickly so that by right could open at this location as soon as possible. There's one caller in support. After after public comment, uh, President Peskin moved to one, amend the ordinance to adopt the section 302 findings, and two, send the item uh, with a recommendation as a committee report, and both of those passed unanimously. Lastly, but certainly not least, the committee took up the housing element update. Uh, commissioners, you approved the housing element update on December 15th. As you know, the board does not have the ability to amend the housing element once it has been transmitted to them. They can only accept or reject it with an up or down vote. During the hearing, planning staff gave a presentation on the update and was available to answer questions. The supervisors often praised planning's work, specifically highlighting the community outreach that was done and the willingness to listen to community concerns throughout the process. Uh, supervisors reserved most of their questions for the director of the Mayor's Office of um, Housing and Community Development, Eric Shaw. Uh, Vice President, uh, Vice Chair Preston directed questions uh, to Director Shaw about whether the city has a land acquisition strategy and whether we're keeping on track of stalled affordable housing projects. There's also conversations about resource constraints and where additional funding could come from. And Peskin generally aligned his sentiment with Preston's comments. Chair Melgar's comments focused on the need to utilize high resource areas and uh, that we need to invest in infrastructure, especially on the west side. She specifically mentioned the need to improve our electrical infrastructure as we electrify our homes and economy to address climate change. She also commented that she um, has heard from her constituents that they see a need for 
um, housing at all income levels on the west side, stating that there are very, very few apartments on the west side, and she wants to make room for the next generation of nurses and teachers. Public comment was robust. However, I believe most of the callers um, were calling in, and few were actually in the chambers. Many praised the plan, but noted that it was only the first step and that the city must take the implementation phase seriously. Others said the plan was lacking, especially with regards to affordable housing, but that we must pass it so that we are a compliant housing element. Um, a rare case in San Francisco when both sides of the issue wanted the same outcome. Once public comment was over, the committee uh, excused President Peskin from the vote. He had been calling in from home due to an illness. Um, and the committee then voted to recommend the housing element to the full board on a two to zero vote with Peskin excused. At the full board this week, the uh, board heard the conditional use appeal for 4835 Mission Street to establish a cannabis retail use with no on-site consumption. Commissioners, you heard this item on mm -hmm. September 29th and voted unanimously to approve. The appellant appealed the commission's decision on the grounds that the project violated the Sunshine Ordinance's public notice requirements. The project is within proximity of Balboa High School and thus not in accordance with the required six cent buffer requirement, and that there is an oversaturation of similar businesses in the area. Public comment was similar to what has been said at planning commission hearings and typical for a cannabis retail use. After public comment, Supervisor Safai asked that the sponsor commit to good neighbor policies and recommended that the board look at future citywide cap on cannabis retail. Uh, Supervisor Stephanie mentioned that she is looking into legislation to do just that. Um, after that, the board unanimously um, voted to uphold the Planning Commission's decision and reject the appeal. And uh, also on the agenda was Supervisor Peskin's grocery store in Polk Street Neighbor Commercial District um, ordinance, which passed the first read, and the housing element passed its first read without a peep from anyone. So that's my report. Thank you, Mr. Starr, and also I'll just say thank you to staff um, for shepherding the housing element through, and I think we're almost at our last approval next week, so we're very much looking forward to that. Yeah, and I should just note on that we are expecting HCD certification soon after approval. We did get a pre-certification letter from them that basically said if the housing element remains as, as you approved it, uh, they could certify it. So we expect that to happen hopefully the next day. All right, well done everyone. Thank you. Okay, if there are no questions for Mr. Starr, we can move on to general public comment. At this time, members of the public <clears throat> may address the Commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the Commission except agenda items. With respect to agenda items, your opportunity to address the Commission will be afforded when the item is reached in the meeting. Each member of the public may address the Commission for up to three minutes, and when the number of speakers exceed the 15-minute limit, general public comment may be moved to the end of the agenda. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Uh, Georgia Shudish. Um, here's a handout that I mentioned last week during item number eight on uh, planning code enforcement, showing a series of elevations for the CUA approving the illegal demolition on 21st Street. Uh, the first page is a guide to the handout. Uh, at the hearing uh, on enforcement and the new penalties, I neglected to thank Mrs. Merloni, Ms. Wong, Mr. Teague, Mr. Starr, and Supervisor Ronan and Mr. Lerner and Ms. Jensen for their work on this important legislation. This legislation is a necessary incentive to get people to do the right thing, or at least to be more mindful to try to do the right thing. I also view adjusting the demo calcs as an incentive to do the right thing, 
or to be more mindful of trying to do the right thing. At the January 18th uh, Historic Preservation Commission hearing on this code enforcement, Commissioner Nagaswaran asked Ms. Wadi a direct question about adjusting the demo calcs. This exchange can be viewed on SFGov TV starting at about 53 minutes on January 18th. I urge the Commission and everyone interested in demolition and housing policy to watch it, please. One of the points Ms. Wadi made was that she and the director and the zoning administrator have a fundamental disagreement with me about the policy of adjusting the calcs because it wouldn't have any effect on the outcomes, in part because developers would just go up to the edge of any new threshold. Actually, though, the disagreement is not with me, but with the Commission's legislative authority to adjust the demo calcs. Isn't that the point of adjusting the thresholds by making them more stringent, reducing them by up to 20%, and incentivizing developers to preserve existing sound housing, which was and still is the policy of the city? In the meantime, while the new housing element is being implemented over the next several years, it seems important to at least have a discussion on the paradigm shift that is possible by adjusting the demo calcs. Thank you very much. And here's the handout for you showing those uh, elevations from 21st Street. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Shudish. Any other members of the public in the chambers wishing to speak under general public comment? Seeing none, we'll go to our remote callers. Again, you need to press star six to unmute yourself. Yes, go ahead. My name is Francisco de Costa, and uh, what I would like to bring to your attention is that uh, the first people of San Francisco, the Moab Maloney, sent y'all a letter, which I hope each one of you commissioners read it. The Moapoloni are federally recognized. And this is very important for you all to note. In the early 1980s, we made sure that this was noted in the general management plan of the San Francisco, a very important document. What I feel is that as much as y'all try to include the first people, including the Moat Maloney, into the housing element and in your other documents, y'all do nothing whatsoever. Now, having said that, you must remember that this land was stolen millions of acres. And the way planning has been done in our city is one of the worst. And 
in order to understand it, you must travel to other cities, not only in the United States, but in, in Europe and in other places. I've had a lot of patience with you all because you don't do your homework. You are not sensitive to the indigenous people. And the time has come to put you on notice. We did send you a letter. There are a number of press releases that we are going to be doing. We're going to be having a conference in Berkeley on Saturday. And you should come or send some representation so that you really are educated on issues. This commission is pathetic when it comes to the indigenous people. It's not about talking, it's about action. It's not compassion, it's empathy. You have no tenacity and no fortitude. Thank you very much. Okay, last call for public comment. Again, if you're in the chambers, you need to come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three. Okay, seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners, general public comment is closed, and we can move on to your regular calendar for item seven, case number 2022-011950-CRV for the fiscal year years 2023 through 2025 proposed department budget and work program commissioners this is an informational presentation and uh, the budget and work program will be coming back to you in a few weeks for adoption and just commissioners if i can start and we look forward to the to this the discussion and your input on in this um we continue to face a challenging budget uh our revenues were declining pre-pandemic and our revenues make up about 70% of our budget, they obviously declined, you know, at an accelerated pace during the pandemic. We're not seeing a recovery in revenues. Um, so, you know, as the general fund is also getting reductions in its revenue, we're seeing less from the general fund. So as you'll see from the numbers, it's a, it's a challenging budget environment. At the same time, we're being asked to do uh, some pretty intense and additional work around the housing element completing it, which which is done, but then implementing it, which is, you know, a major portion of our work program going forward. We've been able to allocate resources internally to ensure that, this, that this your priorities are being more. staffed, but we'll uh, talk more and look forward to the discussion. Okay, thank you, Director Hillis. Commissioners, uh, my name is Deborah Landis. I'm the Deputy Director of Administration at the Planning Department. And uh, we are coming here with today's um, presentation for the next two-year budget. Um, a reminder, as always, for the planning department, we have a rolling budget. So once we get the, this through the entire process, the first year will be fixed. But we will be back in front of you next year for the out year to, to discuss any changes you might like to make at that at that point. So um, I have my lovely assistant, who is also my boss, um, helping move the slides along. So um, 
Tom DeSanto, our Director of Administration, is, is also here. And we have our other senior managers in case you have any questions about um, program specifics. So um, I'm going to go through some sort of background and, and you know, the mayor's instructions. Deborah, if you could speak a little closer to the microphone or pull it up a little bit, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, is that better? OK. So background and then um, uh, including the mayor's instructions, um, volume and revenue trends. And then I will review both the revenue and expenditures um, a little bit with the work program, and we also have our director who has um, graciously been volunteered to go through a few slides around um, the equity-specific portion of our work program. Um, and then I will jump back in for just a review of the calendar. Um, but, you know, it's essentially the same as every year that, that we come before you. So. Um, hopefully nothing too shocking and, and no big surprises here. If there are, we of course are happy to take questions and answer those um, when we come back on February 9th. Okay, so um, as the director mentioned already, you know, we're, we are in sort of a downturn of economic cycles. Um, we've had, we had many years of very, very large growth unprecedented growth in the entire city and country as well as within the planning department. That started to plateau around 2018 um, and we have been decreasing since then. So the current year is somewhat similar to last year but it is slightly lower. Um, in terms of the general fund um, and overall revenue picture, we are looking to reduce our fees by about $2 million. Uh, the mayor's office has given instructions that we should reduce our general fund by approximately 500,000 in the current year and an additional 300,000 in the out year. Um, and they have also instructed for no additional general fund requests. So fairly typical over the last, well, the last 15 years that I've been working with the city. <laughs> um, so we have a projected two-year deficit of $728 million um, over the next two years, again, the budget year and the out year. Um, the mayor's office has asked all departments to prioritize the recovery of the local community and to focus on accountability and equity in services and spending. And so in terms of our um, equity work, you know, we have this focus on centering equity in our work program. Um, the tool, the budget tool that was created uh, by that division, I think it was, was it two years ago or last year? Either two years ago or last year, um, has been updated. And we are continuing to focus and center in that area. So looking at the volume, um, you'll see a slightly different picture from when we look at the revenue, which will be the following slide. You can see that we were up over 16,000 different building permit and planning application um, cases and review for a few years there, and then it came down. Obviously, 1920 and 2021, um, we had a, a 
fairly significant hit because of the pandemic. Um, and we are higher than those two years um, last year, and we're projecting to be higher than those two years this year again, but not where we were a few years before that. Um, in terms of revenue trends, you can see that a few years back we were at $40 million in terms of fees and revenue, and we're looking at, if you go by the projection, which is the far right, um, or, sorry, that's not the projection, that was our actuals, so we would be about $30 million if that trend continues for the second half of the fiscal year. So we wanted to point that out because it is, um, you know, that's a $10 million shift over just a few years. Um, so if you take a look at the revenue budget, this is all funds. Um, we are going from, in the current year, about $64 million. We're going to take that down to about 58 in the next year, and then about 55 the following year. So again, the bigger changes are we are reducing our fees uh, by about $2 million. And then um, one thing that's always different in the out year is we don't know yet what our grants will be. We don't know the funding opportunities yet, so that out year number is always lower every single year. And we also don't know um, what the impact fee IPIC um, plan will be for that year until the capital planning um, committee approves that plan. So the out year is always gonna be a little bit lower than the budget year. Um, in other ways, the budget year and the out year are almost identical. Um, and then the big change that you're probably noticing here with the general fund support is that we got one-time funding of approximately $4 million um, for the current year, but that was just one-time funding. So we didn't have it the year before. We're not going to have it next year. Um, so it's not like it's a, um, a huge change that we're making. Uh, that was baked in from, from last year's budget. Um, in terms of expenditures, again, you know, Director Hillis mentioned that um, our staff costs are, yet again, the bulk of the costs of the department, and that continues to be true year after year. Um, the um, overhead is a number that the controller's office will set later, so that number will change. We won't know what that number is going to look like um, until... Uh, probably May or so, maybe April, uh, but that's nothing that we have any control over. So um, just always a heads up, you know, that will change. Uh, it's not up to us. Um, the non-personnel services, we are holding steady. We're keeping our um, various budgets around software and contracts and, um, you know, the very exciting things like paying for the leases for our printers, um, holding, holding those steady. And materials and supplies as well, we're, we're holding that steady. Um, in terms of projects, the projects are where we put um, funding that's either some sort of special revenue or you know, the, the um, four million that we got last year. So it could be grants, it could be impact fees, um, or that one-time funding that uh, when we got it, we didn't know exactly how it was going to be spent. So that's the projects line, and that's why you see a big decrease there is because we had that one-time funding. Um, the interdepartmental services on the expenditure side, this is what we pay other departments for what they give us. So our big ones are 
some of our esteemed guests. Um, but really, rent, um, Department of Technology, and City Attorney are our big top three. Um, so in terms of the work program overview, um, you can see we're not at this point proposing a lot of change. I do expect that we will come back to you proposing um, cuts of some vacant positions. So when we come back at the next hearing, we will have more detail. Those have not been determined yet, uh, but we are only looking at vacancies. I just want to make that clear. Um, so no need to panic. Um, and something that, that we also like to remind people about is that, you know, 10 years ago we had, uh, I don't know, 100 fewer positions than we have right now. So I think it does make sense in this time of bringing down our revenue that we would look at um, the, the size of the department and being able to make adjustments um, with as little pain as possible. Um, and so we will, when we're back on the 9th, have more detail on how, how we propose to make that happen. Um, and with that, I will hand it over to our director. Yeah, and obviously, you know, the, the budget in reviewing our budget and developing our budget is not just a time to look at our revenues and our expenditures, but where we're actually, what our work program is and where we're allocating those resources in, uh, those of you who were on the commission in 2020, and you can keep the slide up, I think, right? Because we've got a couple more slides. You know, directed us to do that as part of your equity resolution and really look at where we are allocating resources. And through that, we developed a budget equity tool, which we piloted in 2020-21, but we've revised it as, as kind of we've moved through this. We've engaged with our entire staff uh, in discussions around our work program and how we can transform uh, some of the work we're doing. Obviously, a lot of the work we do is regulatory-driven, right? We've got to review permits, but we do have uh, discretion in many areas. You know, I'm proud to say the Office of Racial Equity have actually, has actually used our budget equity tool as a model for, for other departments in their uh, analysis of budget and work program. So if we go to the next slide, it shows kind of broadly how we do this and in, in where we may define our work as centering inequity. And, you know, it's got to meet two kind of broad criteria. Is, is it focused on a equity priority issue area? And is it focused on a, an equity geography or a population? So, for example, our work, um, which we've expanded with community planning in cultural districts, whether it's Soma Pilipinas or Japantown, it's work we've increased over the last couple of years, and that would be work that we would classify as, as, as centering on, on equity. And if you go to the next slide, it, you know, this shows that about 63 of our 228 existing FTEs um, are dedicated to work programs that are, that are focused on equity. Now, I think it's less important what that number is, but that we're consistent in how we look at our work and shift our work in that we're increasing um, the, the, the work program and our resources that we're, that we're focused on equity. I think the housing element uh, is a good, good example of that. So that's our goal here is to continue to, to question what we do, to engage with staff, to engage with community on that, to engage with you and hear your thoughts. 
in, in, in shift that number to, to have a larger piece of our work focused on equity. Thank you. Um, so to wrap it up, and I'm very happy to see that you all still seem to be awake. Um, we are uh, hearing, er, we're, we're at this hearing today presenting to you. We'll be with Historic Preservation next week. We're back to you on the 9th. The budget goes to the mayor's office on February 21st. And then the mayor's office has it for a few months. They pr uh, publish the entire city budget on June 1st, at which point the Board of Supervisors takes over and we wrap up by the end of June. Um, and then we start all over again in October. So if you have any questions, um, I, I would be happy to answer anything about numbers, anything about program. I think we have the experts in the room to address those questions. Or if you don't have any questions and you just want to get on with the rest of your agenda. Thank you. I think we'll take public comment first and then we'll uh, have any questions. Thank Indeed. you very much. Uh, members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward and line up on the screen side of the room. If you're calling in remotely, you need to raise your hand via WebEx or press star three. Okay, seeing no request to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed and uh, the budget and work program information is now before you. Great, thank you so much for bringing that forward to us. We appreciate the time and energy it took to create it. And we've got quite a few commissioner hands up, so we'll start with Commissioner Ruiz. Thank you, and thank you for the presentation. I just have one clarifying question. I'm sorry if I missed this, but the additional $4 million that was granted in the previous budget, was that for the Tenderloin Action Plan? Okay. Yes. Okay, and, and that's not funding that we're expecting to get again, or is that funding that we could get again through budget advocacy? We, we could get it again. Okay. Right, so we don't know. Okay, just, just wanted to clarify yeah. that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Commissioner Diamond? Thank you. Um, there are a couple of other areas that come to mind as very high priority in addition to racial and social equity. I wonder if you could give us an idea of um, how many FTEs are uh, dedicated to implementation of the housing element and to the downtown recovery effort. When you say implementation of, of the housing element, it's a little challenging to say how many FTEs are necessarily associated with that. I mean, I think we can talk about rezoning, mm -hmm. you know, how many may be associated with that. Certainly the, I mean, I, I view the work as implementing the housing element as crossing across all divisions. Ms. Wadi and her team are involved with constraints reduction as well as, as well as our environmental planning team. So there's FTEs allocated there. We've, we've, kind of established a new program within the citywide division to look at the rezoning. We've increased our community planning work in priority geographies in cultural districts. That's a direct result of kind of recommendations in, in the housing element, as well as we're working with MoCD to identify a strategy for funding and ultimately implementation of the affordable housing obligations that we have in the housing element. So. Specific numbers of FTEs, I think, are challenging, but I mean, I can ask Ms. Rogers if she wants to talk about kind of specific FTEs dedicated to rezoning, and Ms. Chianzon to uh, 
if you want to talk about specific specific FTEs kind of dedicated to our community planning work and in affordable housing work. Yeah, and in addition to that, perhaps you could add the creation of the objective design standards and all of the other numerous um, goals and uh, objectives that we included in the plan that you know, aren't necessarily the actual rezoning, but were ways to expedite the permit process right. that was also equally important to HCD in giving us at least the yeah. temporary, uh, or at least the tentative letter of, of certification. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon, Commissioners. Anne Marie Rogers, Director of Citywide Policy Group. And uh, to the Commissioner's question, I can say that we do have a good staff of six quality people that are on the project. The FTE amount uh, per se is, I think, along the lines of the best laid plans of mice and planners. So uh, we've got a robust set of deliverables and a time frame for deliverables that I could describe to you if you're interested. And uh, I think as as time goes along with the project, we will certainly be in cl <coughs> close communication with you and the director about adapting to that. But if you'd like me to go into any detail about what's on tap for the spring and the scope of work that we are ready to deliver, I'd be happy to do so. Yes, please. Okay, great. So as a, uh, you know, this is, um, as the director said, uh, not just the planning department's uh, housing element, but it's the city's housing element. So it is going to take the city to fully implement the 350 plus actions that are involved. Our leadership within our department has been working for the past several months on how we will reorient our work program and all of the staff of the department to accomplish this that's under the responsibility of our department. So within the citywide division, uh, for the next couple of years, we're gonna be focused most closely on what it takes to deliver the rezoning and the associated policy changes that might need to accompany that. So we're gearing up to launch a broad public engagement campaign this coming spring. And uh, the work, as you know, will initially focus on height and density along the commercial and transit corridors in the well-resourced neighborhoods. So the housing element is seeking mid-rise developments in this area. We anticipate kind of doing two pushes for outreach in early 2023. And our target would be uh, to work with the community on a compliant zoning proposal that would be ready for adoption by early 2024. So I also can tell you more about the outreach phases. Are you? Yeah. Okay. I, I I actually don't think we need to use this hearing. I'm hoping that uh, yes. shortly you're gonna actually schedule a matter where you'll go into detail on that as a separate item. I, I just wanted a sense overall of, I, I needed to be satisfied that we are dedicating enough resources to actually do what we said we were gonna do uh, in the housing. I think room. that's what the underlying concern of my question is. Yeah, it is most assuredly a very big task and we are excited to be working on it. I'll just say that for the downtown recovery, we do have a hearing plan next month on the 23rd to come to talk to you about not only the work that the department is doing for the downtown recovery, but also within the larger umbrella that the city is doing. So I could outline some of that or we'll see you next month. Well, so that one's hard to ask you questions on because okay. we don't know what you're proposing. Right, right, <laughs> I just right. want to make sure you have enough resources to do what you're proposing and that it's significant because that is an area of, you know, A, the mayor indicated it should be one of the priorities, but even without that, it is something we're facing every day and without an economic engine, I don't know how we're funding lots of what we're doing. So I want to make sure that, you know, whatever it is you're gonna come and propose to us uh, next month um, is a significant effort and that the budget reflects 
the FTEs that are necessary to accomplish that. But short of that, I can't ask any questions on it because we don't know what you're proposing. Right. And it's an effort with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development and the Mayor's Office and others as to what actually the, the proposal will be. Um, but, but certainly, we'll, we will play a role in that, right? Questions about reusing vacant office space to the extent, you know, and, and even analyzing, you know, how long we expect or how much vacant office space we expect. So there's the analysis portion of this and then also the, the action portion to address some of the concerns we, we have. Well, in including what incentives it might take um, in order to encourage, you know, existing or new businesses to remain or expand. Right. That's absolutely correct. We are surveying the response across the nation about what other cities are doing, including not just planning and zoning changes, but incentives to create change. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Moore. After a very upbeat uh, presentation last week about enforcement, I want to uh, ask where enforcement is cited uh, and what our fundings are. The program outlined last week uh, left me very encouraged that we are going down the right road. However, as we all know, enforcement is difficult. And uh, so I want to make sure that we can deliver what, what was promised last week. Absolutely. Happy to answer that. Um, so it's in your packet, just as reference, um, right around page 40, 41, in the um, more detailed analysis of the current planning budget. But code enforcement is a line item under 7B. Um, we're anticipating to increase our FTE count from the current year to next year, which is, given the current climate, not something we're doing on most of our line items, but we are increasing it from 8.5 FTE to 10. I think an important distinction to make, um, you know, both for our own staff to know and, and for you all, we do have a dedicated code enforcement team that is smaller than that, but their primary goal is investigating complaints and determining whether there is an active complaint and then doing the ongoing tracking. But many of the resolution of complaints are handled by our staff on our development review teams. So it is really a division-wide effort in resolving that. And so the allocation of staff that are dealing with enforcement matters writ large um, is going to increase next year to, to about 10 FTE is what we're anticipating. Does that include a more significant collaboration with DBI and mutual accounting to each other? Absolutely, and, and I do feel a lot of that collaboration is less about quantity of FTE, but quality of FTE, and with our new um, code enforcement manager who presented here last week, Kelly um, Wong is really taking that on in addition to the leadership changes at DBI, making it a more, um, I think, receptive environment for having these collaborative conversations. They are both working really diligently about the sort of joint effort of our enforcement efforts. So absolutely, that is a part of um, an ongoing iterative process to improve our overall enforcement for the city. Thank you. Sure. Commissioner Braun. Uh, yes, I, I'm really curious about the, um, the positions that are currently vacant and might be eliminated in order to uh, uh, address the budget reduction, or I want to make sure I'm understanding that properly. Um, so is, that sounds like that's the case though, right? There, there's going to be a subsequent presentation with, with actual reductions in budgeted positions? Yes, when we come back on February 9th, um, we will have more detail about that. Okay. Is there any sense right now of what the magnitude of those losses might be? And I have to say, I'm also kind of trying to square this with what's in the division work programs uh, on page 39 of, of the item. Um, there's indication of year-on-year -year change of the total FTEs. 
Um, so I, I guess I'm trying to figure out where, where this sits relative to that and um, what sort of the magnitude of the reduction FTEs might be. Um, well, I think we need to, we still need to figure it out. I don't have an answer for you today. Um, but, you know, it's definitely, the work programs don't reflect that yet. The um, overall budgeted FTE don't reflect that yet. So um, I, would, I would say, I think, you know, it's probably most likely that we'll be taking vacant positions that have multiple, um, a job classification that has multiple of, of, of that job classification. So for example, you know, we have one payroll person. I, I, I would doubt that we would remove a position like that because, you know, we only have one. Let's say we have 10 or 30 or 50 of a certain job classification. I think that's most likely where we will be looking to cut. Um, it's possible that, you know, for, for a, a job class where we only have one that we might decide, you know, this has been vacant for a little while. We've been able to get along without it. So, you know, maybe we go that route. But um, until we really, you know, hash it out together, um, I think it would be premature for me to give you an answer about that today. Sure. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'll be curious to see how this that part plays out. Uh, but my other question is, I, I noticed that in the document there's also a reference to, on the schedule page, um, to performance measures being discussed at today's hearing as well, although it's the only time it's referenced in the document, so maybe it was sort of um, a typo, I'm not sure. But what what was the reference to performance measures um, supposed to be about? Uh, that was likely something that was still in there from a previous year. The calendar, the schedule for the performance measures for the controller's office um, is later in the spring. Um, they stopped actually checking those for a couple of years, or not checking them, they stopped asking for them. Mm. So um, we, no city department provided them for a couple of years. So I, I, I would guess that that is just an oversight that because it's a long document, I didn't notice those particular um, the phrases. So um, I, I believe I believe it's around May or June that they usually request those. Okay, and do those typically, this is my first budget cycle on this commission, so do those typically come to the planning commission as well um, for review? No, they're just sort of internal performance, financial performance measures. We, we certainly can yeah. bring them to, I mean, it's been this, I mean, we've, we've kind of shifted to manage by work program, although we do track performance measures in individual divisions, we'll track performance measures like time it takes to, to you know, review up a, a, a permit. It's difficult on a department level, given kind of the different nature of permits you see and kind of coming up with, with an average. So, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't think they've been terribly useful, or at least at the level that we've had them, but different divisions utilize performance measures, especially kind of current planning and in, you know, where we're, where we're kind of, we've got a, we've got a regulatory function. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, on the whole, uh, th I just had those two questions and I think that, um, having said, you know, this is my first time going around with the budget cycle on the commission. 
Um, I've been very interested to have this moment in order to fully understand the entire sort of breadth and scope of the department's work and everything that it's touching, what the priorities are in terms of resource allocation. And it is an enormous uh, amount of work the department takes on, as we all know. But in looking at this document, uh, it's very impressive, and I'm uh, appreciative of it. And it's great to see everything laid out. And uh, I do see the priorities that we've been discussing as a commission reflected in the document. So thank you very much. Thank you. Commissioner Imperial? Thank you. I would agree with Commissioner Braun that I think a lot of the discussions that we've had in the Planning Commission from the previous year are also reflected here in the document. Um, I do have a question when it comes to contracts, um, and it looks like, um, which I'm very, I think, you know, I'm glad that the department is putting um, or um, allocating a big amount, chunk of money when it comes to committing engagement strategies, which is around 650000 Can you explain if we're talking about contracts and this is the committee engagement strategies guidance um, how do we bid on these contracts or how do we make sure that these contracts um, especially for this one committee engagement strategies and um, and I'm also thinking that this guidance is also in response for the housing element implementation as um, you know as we're going to it so um, yeah, I, I just can you expand more on the committee engagement strategies? Yeah. Um, and I think Ms. Gian may be on online. Jonas, is she Gian? Because we are engaged, we are, we're working with MOCD to issue mm -hmm. and uh, NOFA RFP to, to get responses to do that work, which she can explain more. Good afternoon, Commissioners Miriam Chion uh, with the Planning Department. Uh, the, the community engagement funding, it started uh, last year, and this is based on the resolution that you adopted three years ago and guidance from the Equity Council that we need to uh, add resources for the community to fully participate in, in our planning process. Uh, in terms of the, and so this, some of that has supported the housing element, but it's going into some of the equity communities that we have prioritized. So the cultural districts, as well as the Fillmore and uh, originally the Tenderloin before it received the $4 million. We're working on the contracting to figure out what's the easiest path for our communities to actually get uh, the funding and the resources in this last Around what we're trying um, is working with MoCD as Director Hillis because they have uh, a, a, a well-designed structure to allocate grants for um, community organizations. We are um, proposing a fellowship program, so to have um, members of the American Indian, Black, and Latino community to join to be at the planning um, to be at the planning department one day a week and figure out how we can collaborate in the drafting of the strategies for those communities. But this is an ongoing process where we'll be allocating the resources according to the needs and the equity priorities that we hear from you and um, our community leaders. Okay, thank you very much. That's really put it the dots on what's on the contracts and the milestones that okay that yeah, that answered all my questions. Thank you. 
Thank you. Maybe Ms. Joan, could you just follow up on that a little bit more in terms of the, um, the equity council and perhaps how their priorities may be reflected in the proposed budget that we're looking at? Uh, there are four areas that they have identified um, at this point. Uh, the um, housing stability, the um, um, economic and econo economic well-being, integrated community strategies, and community visibility. And um, we think we're addressing those four areas in, in different ways um, within the community equity division, but also across other divisions. The, the housing stability is obviously a big task through the implementation of the housing element. Um, in terms of uh, community visibility, it's part of the work that uh, we are engaging with the Equity Council as well as this uh, um, fellowship programs in the communities. Uh, the um, economic and well-being, it's an area that uh, we're coordinating with OEWD. And um, the integrated community strategies, uh, that's a big task and um, it's, it's part of the, the construct of our work program. The Tenderloin is a good example where we're working not only with our usual partners, which is mostly the OAWD, HSH, but also with public health and police and fire. Um, it's creating those, those networks and the same thing, it's applied to the cultural districts where we have planning MOCD, OEWD, and um, Arts Commission. So uh, we think we are equipped at the, at the basic level to address those priorities. There will be a discussion that the Equity Council will be having in the next couple of weeks about what will be their focus for 2023 within that framework. Okay, we look forward to hearing more about their feedback and kind of where they're, they're focusing their energy and um, again, hoping to continue to keep the connection between this body and the Equity Council strengthened and um, continue to think about ways to make sure that they are, we're getting their feedback really as we're carrying out our work and the budget's a big, a big part of that. I want to pick up on some of Commissioner Diamond's questions about the housing element staffing and just to know I see it throughout as we're looking at the kind of the, the ladder tables in our packet. So I do see that there and I know we're looking at, at cuts of vacant positions. So hopefully that then won't impact the plans we have for implementation of the housing element and perhaps um, picking up also on Commissioner Braun's comment around performance measures, I think there could be an interesting conversation around, you know, we have a tremendous focus on housing that we really didn't have previously um, in our previous housing element cycle. And so both thinking around, there's the measures themselves, of course, the housing that gets built, right, the permits that, maybe that's like the, the, the highest level measure, just either the housing permits get pulled or they don't, the housing gets built or it doesn't. But also thinking about our permitting streamlining that we're doing, the time it takes to do certain activities and permit certain units, um, and how we can perhaps track those or think about what is it we really care about when it comes to our housing production, as well as how we want to track in a more qualitative way our output on the other housing goals, which are maybe more policy related and they may take months or years before they we get to say, yay, we accomplished it, um, but at the same time tracking those smaller milestones. So I think there's some opportunities to think about what performance looks like. Um, and of course, we have our, our forthcoming HCD study of our, our policies and practices, and that may give us even yet some more opportunities to think about what we're measuring and how we're reporting out. So uh, no shortage of work, uh, for sure. Um, and I want to thank the staff again for putting together the budget and proposing it. We've got a lot of work to do in... I guess, Director Hill, is it, with the cuts that we're proposing to make, do you see any concerns about needing to 
make choices regarding what programs we do or don't move forward with. Um, and then maybe that also relates more to like an ongoing management issue of just like as staff do turnover, like making sure we move resources around to, to, to our priority projects and some projects having to go you know, to the back burner from time to time. Yeah, I think that's the biggest issue, right? Cutting the vacant positions, I don't think, is a, is a big issue because we've been able to kind of keep a decent number of vacant positions available as the budget may may grow because of revenues or shrink um, because of lack of revenues. So I'm not too concerned about the vacant positions, but you're right. As you know, if our if our revenue goes down and we can't fill positions, you know, our, our work program kind of adjusts by who may leave. You know, and then we've got to shift resources around or or you know petition the, the mayor's office and others to backfill those positions which you know they've they've been they've not been anxious to approve necessarily so we've got to make those cases for particularly work programs around housing element implementation and filling those positions and making adjustments as we need to um, if, if staff shifts or leaves so you're right. I mean, that's the challenge going forward in, in managing our work program is to be focused on our work program and, you know, needing to shift resources if we have to. Yeah. And then one other topic that's maybe a little bit bigger in scope is, and this I think a lot of planning departments across the state and country probably think about this is the balance between, you know, long range and community planning, which is incredibly important and what we are investing a lot of money in, and also our revenue that is generated from our permit application fees and more of our current planning or environmental review we do. And, you know, there's always the debate of how much should be funded by fees and, right. and how much should be funded by general fund because it's something the city wants to do. Now, there's an argument to be made to justify the fees, which says, well, you know, you need your long-range plan in order to have your current planning policy, and so therefore, you know, you got to invest in the future with some, some portion of the permit fees going towards that. But I do wonder if you are aware of any other ways cities are funding um, long-range planning. Maybe it's just the general fund versus fees, or, or are there other opportunities for us to look at how I mean, we structure it, is, it? Yeah, it's generally that split, right? General fund from for more citywide community planning work in you know, fee revenue for permit review and, and environmental planning. So yeah, I think, we, you know, and we've seen a reduction as a percentage of our entire budget for general fund uh, revenue into our budget. So, you know, we, we, I think we've made some inroads in the last year or two. I mean, certainly the Tenderloin work was general fund funded, so it, we saw an increase, but that was targeted to that that specific work. But I think we continue to highlight that, you know, our kind of percentage of our budget that's funded by the general fund. And, you know, I think it's improved a little bit over the last couple of years, but I think if you look at the trend over the last 20 years, it's it's been reduced. Yeah, and I think it's a reflection of a lot of things, including just like fewer, fewer public dollars to go to more things, right? right? So we're still in that as well. I don't see any other commissioner hands up, so I think we may be ready um, to conclude this information item. And it's a couple weeks from now that we'll see the budget for approval, I believe. Yes, February 9th. February 9th, great. Thank you very much. All right, thank you, commissioners. Very good, commissioners. That'll place us on item eight for case Actually, um, I'd like to take uh, item 10 out of order, if we can, and call very, that item next. Very good, commissioners. Uh, in that case, we will take items 10 A and B out of order for case numbers 2021-007313. PCA, MAP, and CUA. For the Village Special Use District Planning Code and Zoning Map Amendments, as well as a conditional use authorization. 
Good afternoon, members of the Planning Commission, Alex Westhoff, department staff. Uh, before I get started, I would like to introduce Andrea Bruss uh, from Mayor London Breed's office to provide opening remarks. Commissioners, uh, Andrea Brass from Mayor Breed's office. Been a while since I've had an item at the Planning Commission, so nice to see you all. Um, and I'm actually, you know, really proud and excited that this is the item that brings us here today. Um, so the proposed legislation before you, sponsored by Mayor Breed, is a special use district that will enable the um, village. It's the village special use district that will enable the village SF project, which really is the result of a tremendous amount of community and city collaboration. Um, and you know, San Francisco and the Bay Area has an incredibly vibrant American Indian community, but it's a community that is often very invisible, even to those of us in city government. Um, and it really is this lack of visibility and acknowledgement that can lead to disparities in allocation of resources or the lack of intentionality um, and focus on what types of services and support are really needed to support this um, diverse community. Um, and part of this work, um, due in no small part to the tremendous um, community leaders, nonprofit organization, directors and staff, and the American Indian Cultural District, is changing that dynamic in our city. Um, and this project really presents a unique opportunity for the city to support a community-led effort um, that is going to build a full-service, integrated, cultural, uh, physical space and hub in our city that will provide a diverse range of services from transitional housing to workforce development services to youth services to those supporting um, women and families in our city, as well as cultural and ceremonial gathering spaces and a rooftop garden dedicated towards the cultivation and focus of traditional food and medicine um, that is really integral to part of uh, the work that uh, this, all of the operators and, and, and individuals and uh, community members that will be visiting this space will partake in. Um, and I have no doubt that this project will serve as a national model for how to do this work um, with community throughout the country. Um, and I know you'll hear a lot more details from planning staff and a lot more um, from the community itself, but I really did want to take the opportunity to um, just stress the importance and support um, of this project to the mayor and to the entire city um, and to your staff for helping facilitate it. Um, and I'm happy to stick around with questions so long as they're not about the budget process <laughs> um, or approval of requisitions. Um, but really did want to take this opportunity to um, make sure that you knew this project has our emphatic support and we're uh, proud to be the sponsors of this legislation. Thank you, Ms. Bress, and we're very thankful to Mayor Breed for bringing this legislation forward. Yes. Yes, thank you, Ms. Bruss. And uh, once again, Alex Westhoff, department staff. Uh, so there's two items before you today relevant to this project at 80 Julian Avenue uh, with assessors parcel block number 3547 and lot number 52. Uh, the first item is an ordinance amending the planning code and zoning map to add the village special use district. Uh, the subject lot zoning district is Valencia Street NCT uh, neighborhood commercial transit, and it's in a 45X height. Bulk district. 
uh, the special use district would allow through a conditional use authorization exceptions from specific planning code requirements, including for floor area ratio, height and bulk, rear yard, use size limits, permitted obstructions, dwelling unit exposure, active use, setbacks, and select fee requirements. Additionally, through this ordinance, the subject lots height and bulk district would be changed from 45X to 80X. Uh, the second item is a conditional use authorization pursuant to pending planning code sections 249.2 and 303 and board file number 221261 to allow exceptions to planning code section 121.2, non-residential use size limits 124, floor area ratio 134, rear yard 140, dwelling unit exposure 141.1, active use 261.1, setbacks on narrow streets and alleys and impact fee requirements of planning code sections 411A, 414A, 415, and 423 for the project at the subject property. Oops. Uh, the project itself is a six-story, 79-foot-tall, uh, 41,608-square-foot mixed-use building, also known as a village, as the village, sorry, to be constructed on a vacant lot. Uh, the site is well-served by existing transit lines, and the project includes 20 bicycle parking spaces and no automobile parking. The new building, um, as Ms. Brusk described, uh, includes a uh, basement level youth recreation and development center, a, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, youth programs and other social services on the second floor, a first floor elders center and community gathering space, a dental clinic on the third floor, a medical clinic on the fourth floor, and additional 21 group housing units are included on floors five and six, uh, specifically for current participants um, of the and graduates of the Friendship House Association of American Indian Substance Use Disorder Program, uh, with the fourth floor, with the fifth floor, sorry, devoted to mothers with their children. Uh, the building's roof deck will contain common open space, including vegetable gardens for residents. And additionally, the project will serve as the administrative headquarters for the American Indian Cultural District, which was established in 2020 as the first cultural district in the United States, specifically dedicated to recognizing and honoring American Indian history and culture. Uh, since the publishing of the case report, letters of support have been received from the Cayavente Cuatro Latino Cultural District, the Latino Task Force, uh, the Mission Housing Development Corporation, NorCal Carpenters Union, uh, Native American Health Center, uh, Cultura y Arte Nativa de las Americas, uh, the American Indian Cultural District, and the Centra Latina uh, de San Francisco. Uh, through providing a community space for one of San Francisco's most vulnerable populations, the proposal strongly aligns with the planning department's efforts to advance racial and social equity. The department recommends approval of the proposed ordinance through the adoption of the resolution included in the case report. Additionally, the department recommends approval of the conditional use authorization with conditions. The project sponsor will now make a presentation, and I'm available to answer any questions. Thank you. Project sponsor, you'll have five minutes. Okay. Uh, good evening, commissioners. My name is my uh, executive director, Gabriel Pimentel. My name is Peter Bratt. 
I'm from the Quechua Aymara people. I'm born and raised here in San Francisco, and I'm here representing the Friendship House Association of American Indians, an organization that I've been a part of for over 30 years. As the gentleman just mentioned, Friendship House is an inpatient drug and alcohol treatment center serving American Indians from throughout the Bay Area, the state, the nation, and uh, we are the oldest social service agency in the United States run by and for American Indians, and next year we will turn 60 years old. Um, the Village Project that you're reviewing today was the vision of our late founder, Helen Wakazu. The Village will offer medical, dental, and behavioral health services, as well as a cultural gathering space and youth program, an elders program, and a rooftop farm. I mentioned Helen because you can't really understand the Friendship House or Village story without understanding hers. As a child, Helen was forcefully taken from her family on the Navajo reservation and sent to a boarding school in Utah. Under the Federal Termination Act, an act designed to erase native culture and force assimilation of American Indians, Helen was later relocated to San Francisco. She was dropped off in the mission, assured of housing, supportive services, and employment. She arrived, and there was nothing. It's from this experience that Helen and three other Native women built the Friendship House to what it is today. This afternoon, myself, my relatives, we're here to ask you to approve Helen's vision to build the social service and cultural hub for American Indians living in San Francisco. The village will be a place where Native peoples can access vital supportive services, but more than that, it will be a place where our people can gather in community to enjoy a sense of safety, connection, acceptance, belonging, and what we all need, a place to call home. And while we're here asking for the Commission's approval today, we are also in many ways also asking for justice. Because before there was a federal government, before there was a state of California, and before this was the municipality of San Francisco, this was native land. In California, colonial expansion was particularly brutal. And as in other parts of the country, American Indians were systematically murdered and erased. I believe, and my relatives behind me believe, that the Village SF will move us in a direction to not only reconcile our past, our painful past, but will also help move us forward to healing it. With that, I thank you for your kind attention. I'm gonna turn it over to my good sister, Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, my name is Janie Madumba. I'm with Piatark Architects and I'm the project manager for the project and we are honored to be working with the village team. Here we go. Technical issues. Yes. You can advance? Okay, we're gonna do this together. Um, this next slide here is coming. All right, here you'll see the map of the American Indian Cultural District where the Village Wellness Center is located and is directly adjacent to the Friendship House Center. Oops, thank you. Zoning in on the site, uh, the site is bordered to the east by Julian Avenue, 15th Street to the south, and 14th Street to the north. The site is approximately 66 by 100 feet, approximately 6,600 square feet as a site footprint. 
The building maximizes the 6,600 square foot site, creating a vertical village, combining culture and community, health and wellness and housing, with the roof out, rooftop outdoor space and agricultural farm. The vision for the village programming is to really be a hub of home, health, culture, and community, and come together as a vertical village. Diving into a more detailed section of the building, the extensive building program and its uses takes full advantage of the 6,600 square foot site. The basement entry level and second floor will be home to a recreational basketball court, community hall, youth program, and offices for Friendship House and the American Indian Cultural District. Levels three and four are dedicated to the Native American Health Center, home to a dental clinic on level three and a medical clinic on level four. Levels five and six are housing levels. Level five will house graduate interns from Friendship House programs. And level six is the women's lodge for women and their families. The roof serves as an open space for the Excuse building we're and residents. Give an extra additional three minutes for the presentation. Please the, continue, ma'am. Thank you. The roof serves as an open space for the building and residents, as well as home to an agricultural farm. The village communicates the cultural values and voice of the community captured through the design process. The village is an expression of American Indian cultural values, echoing the use of natural materials, curved forms, and east-facing prominence. The warmth of the mass timber structure is expressed at both the interior and the exterior. The facade is a composed pattern of textured terracotta panels and vertical terracotta baguettes. The east-facing entrance is prominent along Julian Avenue and is highlighted by a circular stair that connects the basement through to the second level. This south-facing facade illustrates the potential for a large mural and placemaking opportunity for the community and cultural district. Zooming into the facade, you will see the warmth of the mass timber structure, the woven quality of the terracotta panels, baguettes, and glazing. Focusing on the site plan of the building, you'll see how the building really expands to its footprint. You can see Friendship House to the right in close proximity. As a design perspective, we paid particular attention to the existing courtyard and the future opportunities for cultural gatherings and activities for the exterior existing courtyard to connect the two buildings and can serve as a gathering place for the community. Painted art medallions in the street like those shown on the site plan are all ideas to further the presence of the community within the neighborhood. Our village team is here to answer your questions. Equity Community Builders, Friendship House, Paya Talk, and Badener Urban Planning um, will respond to your questions, and we look forward to your approval and recommendations. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Commissioner Diamond? Uh, I have a question for the first speaker. Do you mind coming back up again for a second? So I am struck by the gorgeous red shawl that you're wearing, and I'm wondering if it has cultural significance, and if it does, if you take a moment to explain the symbolism so that we all can take that into mind as you're, we think about your project. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for asking. It does have spiritual and uh, cultural significance. We wear these parashawls or blankets. They represent our mothers, our grandmothers, our eternal grandmothers. Uh, women are, very, are held very high regard considered sacred, so we re represent our mothers when we wear these, and they have to be earned, usually in, in community or your people, and they're usually given by our, our spiritual leaders, and so when you, you only wear them to very special occasions and when you're representing your people, so that's why I wore it today, I hope. Thank you. For Thank you for that explanation. 
Thank you for the question, Commissioner Diamond. I think we'll go to public comment and come back to the commissioners after. Indeed. Uh, members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this matter. If you're in the chambers, please come forward and line up on the screen side of the room. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three. And if you're on WebEx, you need to raise your hand. Go ahead. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Sharia Tatatals, Pueblo, Kiowa, and I'm the executive director for the American Indian Cultural District. As you start your commission meetings, you read a land acknowledgement and you publish things on racial equity. I'd like to remind you in 2018 why you established the cultural districts. You put us here for land use, for cultural heritage preservation, you know, to really think about the unique history and as a tool to fight gentrification in San Francisco. If you look at the data and we look at the statistics, without question, American Indians having the lowest home ownership rates, having the highest rental rates, having the lowest unemployment rates, having the lowest graduation rates, having the highest suicide rates in this city, and yet, where do we go in our cultural district to look and to see and to feel a sense of pride? Today I'm asking you to take upon this work that's been done here by our sister organization, Friendship House, Ameri uh, Friendship House Association of American Indians, and really think about justice, really think about visibility, really think about whose land you're on. This is such a small step for you all, but something that is so vital for our community, what they have been providing, that beautiful story that Peter provided. So today, I just want to let you know, you know, this is, this is the right move to make as the Planning Commission. This is what you're here for. This is racial equity in the making by the people, for the people, because that's how we truly believe that it should happen in this city. So as the director of the American Indian Cultural District, I couldn't be more proud to stand here today and to support our sister organizations and what this could represent and what this could really mean for our people. So make the right choice in the city. Don't let it be where are the American Indians when we come here. Don't let ask people ask, are we still here when we come to the city? Don't let us be invisible in our own American Indian Cultural District that you legislated specifically for this purpose to increase visibility, to fight gentrification, and to bring resources for the communities that need it the most. So thank you so much. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Natalie Aguilera. I'm a member of the Choctaw Tribe, and I serve as the Chief Administrative Officer for the Native American Health Center. And I've had the pleasure of working there for 17 years. Um, in case you're not familiar with the Health Center, we're a community health clinic, and we provide services in um, Alameda, San Francisco, and Contra Costa counties, providing services to close to 14,000 members. Um, but we don't only provide medical, dental, and behavioral health as a community clinic, but we provide a robust social service component to our community. Um, because we know health isn't just dependent on a medical visit. Um, but we've been providing this holistic, whole person care long before social determinants health became a buzzword. Um, for decades, we've provided prevention services, youth program programming, um, and importantly, traditional um, healing component to our, to our services. And more recently, we've um, initiated workforce development programs, um, supported the city in providing over $1.2 million um, to San Francisco community members for rental assistance. And I'm here to support the Friendship House and the Village Project, um, and s specifically the variances that they're requesting. Um, the six stories will allow the Village Project to move forward and will allow the space needed for more important community services like the ones we provide through the Native American Health Center. We're really excited to partner with the Friendship House on this project. Um, we plan to occupy two, um, two stories of the building, um, providing the necessary healthcare services and to be closer to our to our community, to the Friendship House, many who are members of our health clinic, closer to the cultural district, um, to be able to provide that holistic care in one building in the village. Um, 
Additionally, I just want to acknowledge that we've been providing services to the community for 50 years. Um, 2022 is our 50th anniversary. Um, and Peter acknowledged the reason why um, San Francisco is home to so many Native Americans in the Bay Area um, due to the federal government's relocation um, program. Um, and organizations like Friendship House, Native American Health Center, stepped up to provide those services um, of the broken promises from the federal government. And when we first opened our doors, our first clinic was opened in 1972 in the Mission District in San Francisco at 56 Julian, where the current Friendship House is. So it'll be like a coming full circle for us to be able to move back to where we started our services 50 years ago. Um, so thank you for your time, Commission. Um, look forward to you approving the project. Thank you. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Thank you for the opportunity to hear us speak. Uh, my name is Catherine Collins. I am an enrolled member of the Little Traverse Bay Band of Odawa Indians. Um, I work for Friendship House. I actually came through Friendship House uh, ten and a half years ago um, through the recovery program. And when I came through the program, it felt like I was coming home. I finally felt like I had a sense of belonging. And through what I was taught there and my keeping in contact with them and becoming an alumni, I have sustained ten and a half years of recovery. And now I'm gainfully employed by the Friendship House. I am the intake coordinator, community outreach worker there, and um, I'm so blessed and honored to be here to uh, speak to you about the village and what it means to me and what it, what it means to other indigenous people coming from all over to our recovery program to have, their, to have a spot for us, a safe spot for us to gather, and then for them to come through our program and then to be able to transition over to, to services that are right there. You know, a lot of our clients, they come from reservations that are even out of state, out of, you know, across the country, and then for them to be able to come and feel safe and have this opportunity to transition right into another uh, safe space for them, it means everything. And I'm really honored to be here and to speak with you, and thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Just a reminder to speakers, if you can speak close to the microphone, that will make sure everybody here uh, can hear your important, your important testimony. Thank you. Good afternoon. Jimmy Sunway. My name is Paloma Flores. I'm here proudly representing this beautiful community in San Francisco. I'm of the Pitt River Nation, Northern California tribe, Medesi, Atsugeiban, as well as my father's people from Michoacan, Mexico, the Purépecha Nation here in my official role with the American Indian Cultural District, supporting this project that was once an idea, a thought, a conversation, a vision by someone, Aunt Helen, who dedicated her entire life existence to serving the people. You, today, you have an opportunity to create a lasting change, to make an impact, a real impact in the lives of the people here that call this space home in San Francisco. For far too long, this community, the American Indian, Alaskan Native, intertribal community, has been overlooked. A second thought, unseen. But it takes the efforts of many, as you can see behind us, to put forth that idea into motion, a project one that will serve the greater community here in San Francisco, as well as the people that it's targeting. Support this project, because by supporting this project and what they're asking, 
you are supporting the people. You are creating opportunities for healing. You are supporting the efforts of bringing truth in a city that would not be had it not been for the lives of the people. I come to you as a former youth worker as well with SFUSD, seeing, as you've heard the statistics, it play out in real time. Imagine being a young person growing up in this city, but never being seen. Imagine going through your entire existence, K through 12, and learning about yourselves, but untruths. Imagine finally calling a place home in these many centers, Native American Health Center, Friendship House, Indian Ed Program, and finally seeing yourself. This is what the village has the potential to bring forth in this city, as well as supporting the anchoring of the American Indian Cultural District, as it is in the heart of our cultural district. One that is here and will always be here. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Verna Garcia. I'm Laguna and Navajo. Um, I've been with Friendship House for 10 years, and I am a descendant of Helen Wakazu. Um, she was Devore, and that was my last name. I, I have a lot of emotions regarding what we're, what we're doing today, because she always wanted to bring back families back together, and this is an opportunity for us to do that. And being here 10 years and working with the lodge, overseeing the lodge and the women and the children, I've seen so much progress, and I've seen those families come back together. And this is what our dream is. And for us to expand and go nationwide, it's, we're here in San Francisco, and that's going to be history for us. And I'm proud to be a part of that. And, you know, we see a lot of the clients, you know, as like today, and we've seen them come in broken, and we see them leave happy. And like Kathy, you know, she's a great worker, and we love her there, and we're family, and it's always going to be family. And for providing this, this opportunity for us, we have... Um, We'll have more extended family. We'll have more uh, resources to help our community and bring back families back together again. And I'm really proud to be a part of it, and I hope you consider being proud with us. Thank you. Hello, commissioners. My name is Karen Wakazu. I'm currently an interim project director at Friendship House. I've worked there off and on all my life, and I'll tell you why shortly. <laughs> the village is and was a dream of my mother's, Helen Wakazu. Sorry. Her goal was to have services at one location. Working together as a village, Helen Wakazoo, mom, aunt, and her favorite grandma, 
She worked effort effortlessly to bring families together in sobriety, spirituality, and to health. And the village will do this. I want to say how thankful I am for your support. I'm nervous, too. <laughs> and I hope you will continue to support the village project. And this is something that she would do when we would drive by a building. She would say, that could be the village. That could be the village. Oh, you kids need to get together and build that. And it's, you know, it's coming. It's starting to happen. It's an important facility with necessary programs for our community. The first occupants of this land and will be the, one, of, one of the only kind in California. I look forward to your approval of the project, and thank you for listening today. Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Sequoia Nakai, and I am Navajo and Lakota. The village would mean much honor to the American Indian community, bringing along mm, just new opportunities, resources, and overall a huge step forward for the Native American community. I've grown up around this community my whole life, so I've never seen anything quite like the village. Um, you know, there's many after-school programs, but then there's never uh, a youth center. And I've grown up in the youth center at Friendship House, and I would love to see it grow in the village. Um, the village won't only help residents from Friendship House, but the youth and the families that are part of Friendship House as well. The village would allow for all of us to be closer, as the village would continue, would contain a women's lodge, elder center, youth center, and other provided resources. This dream of the village came from my grandmother, Helen Wakazu, who said that healing our community starts with healing our families first. She dedicated her whole life to Friendship House, and her dream was a village, so please help her dream become a reality. Thank you. Good afternoon. I am very, very, extremely nervous. My name is Randy Shirley. My tribes are Clinkin and Navajo. I was born and raised here in San Francisco in the Mission District. Um, I grew up with my brother here, Pete. I appreciate you asking him the questions about um, what he was wearing. It's part of our identity. Um, I've been working at Friendship House since June 98. And today I'm the clinical director of the program. Um, and when I work with clients, Basically, living in the Western world, Western ideas, Western medicine, um, we lost our identity. We lose our identity. We will continue to use our identity where things like this, that Helen's been, her dream is going to um, help, help us heal, recover. And part of you are a part of that. You make this decision, and part of it is, is you're going to be part of our recovery here. Um, it's not easy being Native American in the city. Um, Growing up in the city, going to schools, I was laughed at. I was taunted. Long hair, 
um, being different. I was called, hey, Indian boy, woo, 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 hey, yeah, 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 and so on. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. Growing up, um, then I was told by other adults, oh, you should be proud to be Native American. It was, it was confusing for me. It was mixed messages. Hollywood played a part in that. We know that part. Politicians in the past have played a part in that. We know that. And still today, still today, they still do that. They rather kind of, to me, wipe us away, push, put us away somewhere else. Don't want to deal with us. Don't want to deal with their guilt and shame. Again, growing up, I had guilt and shame for being who I am, being Clinkett and Navajo. As I got older, I joined the United States Army. I joined the 82nd Airborne Division, 1986 to 89. I served this country. I'm going to be honest with you. Even when I was serving, there were still people in there that made fun of me because I was Native American. There were some. It's challenging. The mission, growing up in the mission, I grew up, I don't know if you, you guys grew up in the mission, but I grew up in a mission where um, Doggy Diner was still around. 25-hour donuts on 20th and Mission. I remember when I was little growing up, BART was opening up. BART was being constructed. And we see today homeless people. We see homeless people kind of dominating it and very little being done there. Things are being done, but very little. To me, the village, Helen's dream, is going to build this community stronger and unite the community and make us better people, make us better human beings. Again, I want to thank you, Sue Diamond, for your question. I'm, I'm going to do it real quick. I see I'm out of time again. I, if you know me, I like to talk. <laughs> when I got clean sober 28 plus years ago, July 29th. Sir, that, that is your time. Can you, can you maybe wrap it up just in one sentence? Yeah. Um, I want you guys to repeat after me. This is Navajo words. That's a song. It means Shetane, my people. I really love my people. Aho ago shetane hayo yo ishne You guys can sing with me. <laughs> Gave you the words. That's a Navajo song. Our, our leader, Helen Wakazu, was Navajo from the Navajo Nation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Um, my name is Gabriel Pimentel, and I'm honored to follow in the steps of such a, a strong leader. Uh, following in Helen's footsteps is a, uh, it's a huge task. And it was one that um, was presented to me, and the only reason I took this task was simply because of the people that I was serving. Uh, it's such a great honor to finish her vision, to complete the notion that she set out to do six decades ago, which was to help her people. When you look at what we have here, what we've done for the past six decades, it's ultimately we help Native Americans in this community, but that help 
reaches far more than just the tribal community members that are here. We reach the community as a whole. What we're asking today is for you to consider and accept this uh, building project because it's, it is more than just a building. It's a means of healing. It's a means of community. It's a community space for the community. Thank you. Okay, are there any additional commenters in the chambers? Please come forward. Buenas tardes, my name is Roberto Hernandez and I'm a native of La Mision, born and raised here, lived here all my life, been an organizer, been a, of service to my community, and it's an honor to be here to support my native brothers and sisters. Um, I got involved with uh, the American Indian Center when it was on Valencia Street. I can't even remember what year it was, it's been so many decades. But you know, one of the things about growing up here, if you're really from San Francisco, you see all the changes that have gone on. You know, I've seen the, uh, the making of the Davis Symphony Hall, and I've seen the making of this giant stadium, and then this big old rocket Salesforce tower, and in the making of all those, you know, uh, buildings, all these exemptions were made, right? I know most of you weren't commissioners, but I came to those hearings. And we said, why is it that they get exemptions? And they did. It was about money. So today here, we're about a village, a long time overdue village. And Sister Helen that I've had the honor to work with, and my brother Peter, and so many, it's an honor for me as a Latino, representing my community, to be here today to support and to see what's just and what's right, but also to let you know that this should be the beginning of what more needs to be done for our Native American brothers and sisters. And when I mean the beginning, I'm talking about, they talked about homelessness. We're gonna come back to you and get ready because we need to have housing so they're not homeless. This is their land. It was stolen from them. Stolen from them. And so we have a lot of work to do. Not only housing, but recovery and workforce and farming so that we can go back as natives and Latinos and go back to our indigenous ways of living. It costs $10 for a dozen of eggs today. We need to go back to indigenous ways. Gracias. Okay, if there are no additional commenters in the chambers, we'll go to our remote callers. Oh, we have no more remote callers. There was one earlier. Last call then for public comment on this matter. Again, you need to press star three. If you're calling in on your phone or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed. And this, I take it back, there is the one.
commissioners, it would be remiss of me on behalf of the Moapalone to thank all the brothers and sisters who so eloquently request you to fulfill your aspirations. On Saturday, there will be a conference in Berkeley, and I will be meeting the chairperson of the Moak Maloney. And I will talk to her about this situation. You don't need to beg for this building. You request, and it will be given to you. This is the land of the indigenous people. Our planning commission has to be educated on issues. They can make promises. We are not about promises. We are about action. Early on, the Quakers built the friendship homes. They planted the seed. Today you are planting the seed that will grow into a big tree. And that tree will bear fruit. As long as we have life, we will fight for what is right. Much as we did by going to Standing Rock. 10,000 people. We fought for right and we won. You fight for right, and you will win in San Francisco. Aho. Does that conclude your comments, sir? Okay, looks like it does. Final last call for public comment. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed. This matter is now before you. Thank you. I want to thank everyone who spoke today um, for Friendship House for bringing this project forward. I think the only thing I'm more excited about than voting yes uh, to approve the project <laughs> shortly would be to see it um, coming out of the ground and folks inhabiting and visiting the center. So I don't know. Um, who from Friendship House would like to tell us just a little bit about the future of the project, when we might see it, what the path forward looks like. Um, I think we're just eager to know when we might see things and even just to share, use this platform to share what kind of support you're looking forward to um, and resources to bring this project to fruition. Hi, thank you, commissioners. I'm Suzanne Brown. I'm with Equity Community Builders and we are the um, development manager for Friendship House. Um, we are planning to start uh, PG&E work later this year in uh, Q3, Q4, um, and have our groundbreaking at that time, and the building will be going up uh, starting early next year. Fantastic. That's very, very exciting news. Yeah, with completion uh, late 2025. Okay, great. Excellent. That's really good news. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I want to thank uh, Commissioner Reese earlier for reading our land acknowledgement, and I think, you know, one thing... 
uh, sometimes I struggle with as we read that and center ourselves when we begin our planning commission hearings is, you know, are we just doing a performance? Are we actually doing something that's meaningful? And so I'm just so excited that Friendship House is bringing this vision here today that we get to be really a small part of advancing it. And I look forward to the city continuing to work with the culture district and other American Indian groups to continue to consider how do we further um, your presence here, movement building, and continue to advance and support the community here in the city. Um, in ways that are really meaningful and substantive. I've been doing some listening and learning about land back movements. We know there's some great work going on in Oakland, that, uh, not, not very far away, that hopefully we as a city can learn from, and a planning department, of course, just part of that. But looking forward to working with the mayor's office and board of supervisors and others to think about, again, how do we do more than just give lip service, but again, put real meaning behind our solidarity and our efforts to be partners with our Native community. So thank you all for being here. And um, again, I'm very, very excited to support this project and just want to give a, just a last comment. It's just is a beautiful building, very well designed, very thoughtful, and the communication of that through the packet that was provided for us made it very easy to read and understand exactly what's going to be happening and, and understand the impact that it will have in the community. So thank you so much for that. With that, I'll call on Commissioner Imperial and then Koppel, Moore, and Diamond. Commissioner Imperial. Uh, thank you. Um, first, I want to say um, thank you for all the... Uh, people who've worked on this, you deserve this. And don't thank us, thank yourselves too, because you never gave up. Your community never gave up. I was very overwhelmed until now over what this building means to you and to the communities that have been pressed by this government I've also never seen so many exceptions, but this is one of the most meaningful <laughs> exceptions <laughs> that I think is well worth it. And sometimes here in the commission, we see exceptions that is as what I think Mr. Hernandez said, it stands for the greed or the money. But this one is very a place of belonging and I hope this becomes really a beacon for all the communities that have been left behind. And thank you for keep fighting on. Don't stop fighting. Your community owns this land. You own it. So thank you. So I wholeheartedly support this project. Thank you, Commissioner Imperial. <laughs> Commissioner Koppel. Uh, I want to thank each and every one of you for actually showing up in person today. You could have just as easily called in or um, participated, but but not brought the life that you did today here for us. I mean, we sit here every Thursday, and uh, rarely are the seats filled. Uh, rarely are they filled with people as passionate as, as you all are. And uh, I know that, that Helen's looking down on you saying thank you for, for showing up today. Um, the mural is what sticks out to me the most i'm just thrilled to see that i hope people can see it for miles and miles away hopefully there's some uh some lighting so we can still see it at night hopefully it doesn't go go away when the sun goes down but i'm thrilled to just be a part of this and again thanks every one of you for coming up and uh, making this important to us today too thank you commissioner moore
thank you. And the best way to describe my reaction is to be touched, moved, and inspired by all you said, by coming together, and it takes a village. It takes a village to ask for a village. And I, there couldn't be anybody who better expressed my sentiment than Commissioner Imperial. I'm in full support uh, of what's in front of me, and I appreciate that you had the courage and the help and guidance from people who know how to, to learn how to ride the rapids. Those are those exceptions. And uh, the project is so beautiful presented, so beautiful put together, that it, there is not a moment where any of us would argue that these exceptions are not well justified. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Moore. Commissioner Diamond. I want to start by thanking all of the people who showed up for the passion to advocacy on part of the project. It touched a raw nerve, I think, among all of us. Um, and we appreciate your showing up um, in person, um, as Commissioner Koppel said. Second is I want to acknowledge how much work it takes to get a project like this um, to become a reality. It's not only the vision, um, but it is the persistence um, of the community to carry it forward, to insist um, that while compromises have to be made, to insist that the essential elements stay part of the project, to find the land, to raise the funds, to hire the um, consultants that are necessary to work with the planning department um, and to show up here. And that's just the beginning. Um, you know, what really matters is bringing it to a reality. Um, so I, I just want to pause for a moment and acknowledge um, how much work it took to, to get to that point. Third is, um, I don't think it's so many exceptions. It's a one-off project, um, and it's an unusual array of communal uses, and we don't zone for that kind of stuff in general. These are one-offs, and that's why we have special use districts. Um, and you can see it's been used many times in the code before, um, generally for projects like this. I can't think of a better reason to have special use districts than to enable uh, projects like this to move forward. And. Finally, I want to say that I think it's one of um, the greatest honors I've had in serving on the commission is to be able to approve a project like this. It's, a, it's an incredible privilege, so thank you. Um, and I would make a motion to approve, um, but I don't want to cut off other speakers. I'll second that motion. I'll say that it's made. Commissioner Braun. <laughs> uh, I don't have a whole lot to say besides uh, just echoing the other commissioners. Um, thanks and acknowledgement of the hard hard work of a lot of people that it took to bring this project to fruition and to thank everyone who's come here today to speak. Uh, I, I'm just really touched and I really appreciate it. Um, I'm also very excited, um, kind of in a separate vein, about the fact that this is a mass timber project. It's a construction type that we're starting to see more of and more sort of flexible applications of. And so I'm also very excited to see this beautiful building actually uh, come up out of the ground. So this has my, my full support. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, commissioners. Are there any other comments? Commissioner Diamond, do you want to give your hand up? There's no further deliberation, commissioners. There's a motion that has been seconded to approve the uh, planning code and zoning map amendments and conditional use with conditions. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? 
Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously, seven to zero. I'm going to suspend our, yes, let's do a round of applause. We'll suspend our rules. I'm very excited. Thank you all again for coming, and we're very excited to do our small part. Commissioners, that'll place us back on item eight for case number 2018-017026-GPA for the San Francisco Environmental Justice Framework and General Plan Introduction. This is a request for your consideration of a uh, resolution to initiate amendments to the general plan. Good afternoon, Commissioners. I'm Lisa Chen with Department Staff. We're very pleased to be here today to initiate the Environmental Justice Framework and related amendments to the General Plan introduction. Collectively, these amendments will comprise San Francisco's first city policy aimed at addressing environmental justice across all city agencies. And if I may also just say that it is, um, I know it's been a long day, and just thank you very much um, for, um, for having this hearing, and it's wonderful to follow such an embodiment of environmental justice. So, um, so Danielle um, No and Amnon Ben-Pazi will be providing staff's presentation, but I wanted to open by first expressing our team's gratitude. Um, first and foremost to the many community members and organizations that contributed their time and shared their lived experiences, needs, and challenges, and proposed solutions with, to us over the past few years. Thank you for challenging us and for holding government accountable, and we hope that you see your ideas and aspirations translated into the environmental justice framework. We're also grateful to the many city agency partners who contributed to the process, several of whom are here today. Um, they helped us design the project and then worked alongside planning, first in deep listening mode to hear communities' concerns, and then as partners to co-develop policy ideas with community members. Finally, we want to give our thanks to the former staff and interns who worked tire tire tirelessly to make this possible, including Selena Chan, Leslie Valencia, Shelley Caltagirone, Claudia Flores, Tam Tran, Lisa Fisher, Jacob Wallace, Luis Caro, Cassia McDonald, Daphne Pan, and Issa Gaillard. Um, I'll close by saying we launched this work in March 2020 and then watched in shock and dismay as the pandemic magnified economic and health disparities, and particularly in the communities already impacted by environmental injustice. We know that these updates to the general plan are long overdue and are an important step towards centering city policies and racial and social equity. But it will take a collective effort, dedicated resources, and ongoing accountability to ensure that we can achieve our vision of an environmentally just future. After we describe the general plan amendments before you today, We've invited some of our city agency partners to describe how they are planning to align their work with environmental justice. But we really see this as one more step in a long journey 
and we hope that the EJ framework can be one resource to guide us along the way. So I'll pass the mic now to Danielle. Thanks, Lisa. May I get the slide deck up, please? Um, hello, commissioners and everyone tuning in, still in the room. My name is Danielle Ngo, and I'm a senior planner with the department. All right, so we will start with background and goals of this project, uh, give you a crash course on our community engagement and environmental justice communities map. We'll feature the framework itself, describe next steps, and then transition to the general plan introduction. So for some of you, this is repeated content, but for others new to this conversation, we're really happy to share the impetus behind this work. So this work begins with policy mandates from both the state and local levels. SB 1000 requires municipalities to analyze data on disadvantaged communities. We're relabeling this as environmental justice communities. It also requires us to include policies in the general plan to address the unique and compounded health risks. At the local level, resolutions from this commission, as well as the Historic Preservation Commission, have called upon the department to address racial and social equity through general plan policies. So we've chosen to address SB 1000 through an integrated approach. We'll have an environmental justice framework rather than a standalone element. The framework will serve as a guidepost for all city agencies, and it'll include an environmental justice communities map to highlight neighborhoods of concern. There are also EJ and equity policies incorporated in the recently updated safety and resilience element and housing element, and there are future updates planned underway with the transportation element coming up next and other um, scopes for future elements like the environmental protection and air quality elements. As we garner your support today to initiate this general plan amendment, we propose that the framework, including the EJ communities map, will be incorporated by reference into the updated general plan introduction. Inside the framework, you'll find a set of high-level vision and priority statements. These policy topics were adopted through the state guidance, and it encourages municipalities to think expansively about healthy communities, not just the elimination of environmental burden. These next few slides will share more about our robust process to engage the community. Uh, again, SB 1000 has encouraged us to meaningfully involve the community in local decision making. We designed our outreach to uplift the voices of residents, workers, and community leaders most impacted by environmental injustices. This work also aimed to elevate environmental justice to a citywide dialogue across neighborhood boundaries. And lastly, we aimed to both acknowledge the past harms committed in these neighborhoods, as well as identify solutions where city government can step in. For over two years, we conducted outreach and engagement activities, uh, mostly virtual due to the pandemic. And so from there, we pulled common themes for solutions and opportunities for the city to step in. Uh, so starting in fall 2020, we did youth engagement with people as young as second graders at Malcolm X Academy. We also did a virtual open house, a survey, a set of key stakeholder interviews, an eight-month environmental justice working group, and a set of focus groups. 
Notably, the working group reached unanimous consensus on a 28-page document of policy recommendations. These recommendations informed the development of the framework and they're posted online as supplemental material. As part of today's packet, you can find the full summary of our outreach in Exhibit F and includes a very detailed record of what we heard from the community. Our team looks forward to expanding the impact of this type of feedback through subsequent general plan updates and partnership with many other city agencies. With this last engagement slide, we wanted to celebrate all the community-based organizations who partnered with us. We're very grateful for the relationship we've felt along the way, um, as well as the countless community members who shared with us frank and honest, honest commentary about their living and working conditions. So we're very grateful for their trust in us to really incorporate that feedback into citywide policy and action. So now we'll transition to the environmental justice communities map to highlight areas of the city facing disproportionate environmental burden. So SB 1000 cites Cal EnviroScreen as a starting place to identify environmentally sensitive areas. Cal EnviroScreen is a statewide mapping tool from Cal EPA and OIHA that uses 20 pollution, health, and socioeconomic indicators. It's used to determine statewide allocation of cap-and-trade funding. However, there are many policy and community advocates that critique CalEnviroScreen for excluding sensitive areas in the city. So currently, it highlights areas of Treasure Island, parts of the Tenderloin, Soma, and Bayview's Hunters Point, which you can see in the bottom right-hand map. So in our analysis of environmental justice communities, we refined this map in an easily replicable analysis. And so you'll see in the next few slides how it aligns with similar maps from our partner agencies, and it also reflects the ample community feedback on areas of high need. Our team reviewed over 100 data sets and landed on this methodology. So using CalEnviroScreen as our base, we overlaid three additional layers of local data to have a higher resolution of environmental justice. There's household income from the census, air pollution from DPH, as well as the areas of vulnerability analysis that has a number of socioeconomic indicators, such as race, education, and linguistic ability. Here is the final map that you can see in full in Exhibit E. And um, since you last saw this map at our informational hearing, we made some updates to visually enhance what the EJ communities are in red. So as compared to the state map on the right-hand side, you can see our map is more inclusive. There's areas of Bayview Hunters Point, Chinatown, Excelsior, Japantown, Mission, OMI, Outer Mission, Potrero Hill, Soma, Tenderloin, Treasure Island, Visitation Valley, and Western Edition. And so these communities are the top 30% of burdened areas in the city. And it's these areas where policies should prioritize attention and resources. Through our outreach, we received a lot of positive feedback from other agencies and members of the public on this map. In particular, people appreciated the opportunity to think collectively about all neighborhoods in the city that are facing these various health and economic challenges. 
And we're really proud to say it's already being incorporated by other city agencies, which you can hear from in a moment. So as an example, Reckon Park adopted, or the, their commission adopted this methodology as part of their equity zones last year. And the PUC is also using it to determine grant funding for a green infrastructure. So finally, we can dive into the policy language of the framework, which you can read in full as Exhibit A. Okay, so in the draft for initiation, our introduction shares a historical context of environmental justice and racial and social equity in the city. Uh, it's difficult to describe all of that, but we at least uh, gave an attempt in a few pages to set the context of this work. The second portion explains our broad definition of environmental justice, as well as the map. And the third and final portion outlines a set of vision statements and priority statements to guide all city agencies. In the following slides, I'll share our priority statements on the right-hand side within each topic. I won't read through all of them, but hopefully you can see the breadth of this work um, for, for your own judgment. And there's also an example on the left-hand side to celebrate a relevant victory in the community. So starting with healthy and resilient environments, in addition to limiting and protecting against pollution exposure, the framework prioritizes a resilient public utility system in alignment with the human rights to water, power, and sanitation. For physical activity and healthy public facilities, the framework uh, really encourages a diverse set of flexible and inclusive programming so that all people can practice physical and mental health and cultural and community practices as well. <clears throat> For healthy food access, the framework affirms healthy food as a human right, such that food can be affordable, accessible, culturally appropriate. For safe, healthy, and affordable homes, it encourages housing that supports public health. So considering things like building materials, indoor air quality, and other safety considerations. For this section, I wanted to note that the full set of priorities was developed in parallel with the housing element, so you'll see a lot of mirroring policy intentions. For equitable and green jobs, the framework uh, encourages a robust network of work and entrepreneurship so that jobs can benefit the community as well as the workers themselves. And last but not least, Empowered Neighborhoods encourages centering environmental justice efforts in collaboration with the American Indian communities as well as traditional ecological knowledge. So briefly, what's next? Um, we are looking forward to working with all of our interagency partners on implementation and further coordination of this work. So pending adoption of this framework, um, you can see how uh, there's a lot of alignment with their existing accomplishments that are just a bridged summary here. It would, it would be a whole other presentation to talk about their work. So as mentioned earlier, uh, some agencies are already referring to the map and the core policy intentions. We also have phase two of our general plan modernization efforts, and um, we can uh, hear from them after this presentation and are grateful for their partnership. So after this initiation hearing, we hope to return to you for adoption in early March and then see the Board of Supervisors in April and May. So at this point, I'll pass to my colleague Amnon so that you can hear about the general plan introduction. 
Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, Amnon Binpazi, planning staff. And uh, commissioners, uh, this is an opportunity to refresh and modernize the front door to the general plan. Uh, it's an opportunity to highlight recent planning, uh, including the safety and resiliency element, the housing element, and it's an opportunity, of course, to highlight environmental justice, uh, and your resolution of 2020, which affirms that planning is centered in equity. Uh, an introduction that's informative, engaging, and inclusive will invite all San Franciscans to participate in planning. Uh, a few words on the current introduction. Uh, the structure of the general plan is up to local jurisdictions. Uh, in San Francisco, the introduction was created in 1987 uh, following Proposition M. The introduction defines the components and format of the plan. It includes objectives, some of them dating to the 1950s, and it recites priority policies, uh, the priority policies that live in Section 101 of the Planning Code. Excuse me. <clears throat> the current version of the introduction was adopted in 1996 following amendments to the city charter. It keeps much of the 1987 content and adds a summary of the intent and purpose of the plan. Uh, this summary uh, features, quote, the early settlers, unquote, and ignores the people who were here already and everyone else. So what's in the proposed update? Uh, first, the land acknowledgement, and that follows the model that's set by this commission in its hearings. Um, the introduction will describe the history and physical context of the city, and this is updated to be more current and inclusive. The introduction describes the general plan's purpose, including the legal and political context, uh, sorry, and policy context. And here the introduction will explicitly cite the commission's resolution on racial and social equity and acknowledge and apologize for the city's history of inequitable planning policies and actions. Uh, the new introduction also includes an updated vision and that's distilled from recent planning efforts. Uh, this is a vision for a city that's equitable, inclusive, safe, livable, and sustainable economically vital, and with accountable governance and engaged communities. Uh, this vision summarizes high-level goals from the housing element, environmental justice framework, and other recent milestones, including the Commission's resolution on equity. Uh, the vision also draws from ConnectSF visioning process, and this was a series of workshops and focus groups uh, that articulated a vision for the future of the city um, and set the stage for the upcoming transportation element. Uh, the updated introduction uh, will incorporate the environmental justice framework into the general plan. Uh, one last point on the content, right now the introduction duplicates the priority policies from the planning code. Uh, that is, the priority policies are in section 101 of the planning code and are also duplicated in the introduction. Uh, the update removes the duplication, but the planning code will not change, so the priority policies remain fully effective. They will continue to be part of the case reports and findings of consistency with the general plan. Uh, essentially, there will be no change there. Thank you.
Thanks, Anand. So to wrap up, the draft resolution in your packet would initiate the materials for adoption on or after March 2nd. It includes updating the general plan introduction and incorporating the environmental justice framework by reference. We welcome your support so that the introduction is more useful, inclusive, and inviting, and so that we're adding environmental justice and racial and social equity into the general plan for the first time. We wanted to close with this quote from Hazel Johnson, the mother of the environmental justice movement. If we want a safe environment for our children and grandchildren, we must clean up our act, no matter how hard a task it might be. Thank you, commissioners and everyone for your attention today. This uh, concludes our staff presentation, and I'm happy to pass the mic to a handful of our city partners who have been integral to the development of this work. Hello, President Tanner, Vice President Moore, and commissioners. I'm very happy to be here today. Maya Small, um, representing MTA. I'm the planning director there. Um, I'm really glad to be joining um, in support of the environmental justice framework and its policy recommendations, as it's critical to the work that we do at SFMTA to connecting communities and making streets and sidewalks safe and inviting for everyone. A big thank you to the planning department for inviting us to be part of it, and, and the uh, lead planner um, on, and our staff was senior transportation planner Keith Tanner, who I believe is online, um, who has been working alongside community members and other city staff as part of this um, environmental justice working group. Um, the city of San Francisco has inflicted significant environmental harm, particularly in the transportation sector, on our American Indian, black, and other communities that have experienced racialization and our low-income communities. We must recognize and repair these injustices and move forward by working through community-led process to prioritize future investments. This work is already underway. For example, the Muni Service Equity Strategy, which has been updated every two years. It's an active and dynamic process that focuses transit investments. Our community-based transportation plans, which most recently have been serving the Bayview and, Viz and Viz Valley. And our active communities plan, which is actually launching this week, which is serving those who roll or bike and we'll be working through community-based organizations and key equity communities to deeply listen, understand the needs and experiences related to all forms of transportation. We are also centering environmental justice in our work program as we advance transportation integration and development agreements and support future growth anticipated from the adoption of the recent update to the housing element. We urge the commission to adopt this framework and support its implementation in the coming months as it will critically support this ongoing and future project planning. And of course, we'll continue to work with the planning department and other city and community partners to uh, advance environmental justice and are committed to it shaping what we deliver, how we deliver it, and most importantly, who we deliver it for. Good afternoon, Commission Taylor Emerson. I am on the planning side of the Capital and Planning Division of the Recreation and Parks Department, here today to thank you so much for uh, to the staff, really. Uh, I don't know if you heard Danielle say, a 28-page document with unanimous support from over 50 community members uh, plus city staff. So it was really an astounding and skillful uh, community outreach campaign. And um, I learned so much and took some of those lessons back to my home department, uh, where we, uh, after doing our own 
research on uh, other methodologies for defining disadvantage, environmental justice, underserved communities, all the various ways you might say uh, our neighbors and residents that need more. Um, and ultimately, we adopted our commission, our staff and brought to our commission, and we have already adopted this methodology to define what we call equity zones, giving you guys full credit, of course. Um, because in the Recreation and Parks Department, we actually have a charter mandate to measure, to quantify and calculate equity, which is quite a task. Um, and uh, the first step of that is to define where, the geographic element of that, where are we talking about. So we have adopted this methodology, called it our equity zones, and uh, the the, we now measure uh, the allocation, the discretionary allocation of recreation and park services and resources in these areas compared to the city as a whole. And we do that annually. And to the extent any inequities, any deficiencies are identified, those then are exposed and we can begin to address them along with the communities that we serve. So I thank you so much for this amazing tool, and I look forward to the cohesion of the city family, traditionally very fractionalized, quite decentralized in San Francisco. And this is a real opportunity for us to use the same definition, um, which I think will ultimately uh, lead to good government. Thank you so much. I'm not, I'm not sure if they're still on the line, but Shara Mehta and Karen Pierce may also be on. But if not, then we're, um, oh, and then, and Diane is right here in person, and then we can go to public comment. Thank you. Do you want me to come? There you can go. Yes, sorry. <laughs> Pardon for the choreo, but we're here. Good afternoon, President Tanner and members of the Planning Commission. I am Diane Oshima. I work on special projects with the Port of San Francisco. And um, I was able to sit in on some but not all of the community sessions to develop this uh, EJ framework. And um, it was so impressive, the depth and the thoughtfulness of all of those community members that put those recommendations together and the work of the planning staff to be able to distill and summarize it in a way so that there's a standing statement in the general plan. Um, I think what I would say, because I'm still in the process of learning to understand a number of the concepts that were brought up through that process, that this framework really has its benefit, its fuller benefit maybe, in using it as a daily tool um, so that we can informally share it with the city departments and incorporate it into our work because I think there's a step needed to try and socialize some of these concepts that are described in here so that we can confirm we have a common base of understanding so that if we wanna actually implement projects that are carrying out the principles and objectives that are expressed here, that we have greater certainty about that because a lot of the information in there is still open to 
quite a bit of interpretation. And so its application into various projects or operations isn't necessarily straightforward and understood. And that is a level of community engagement that can be perpetuated so that, you know, we share that common understanding, but the, we also come together as well. And um, I think the port has found particular value in the timing of all of this coming together because we are just finishing our master update of the waterfront plan, which is the long-range plan for the port's properties. And there's environmental sustainability, equity, um, resilience policies, and community engagement policies that I can see here are well integrated already and now are also being extended to the port's um, resilience and adaptation planning through the waterfront resilience program. So the flow, continuing the ribbon and the flow through these different layers of work that will continue on a long-term basis, I think is really important for us to keep a focus on. And I want to applaud um, Lisa and Danielle and all of their uh, predecessors on this work. It was really quite impressive. So congratulations, and uh, we stand ready to help you in any way to advance it. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners and members of the public. I am Shreva Mehta. I'm the Senior Environmental Justice Coordinator at the San Francisco Environment Department. Um, San Francisco Environment advances climate protection and the environmental sustainability goals for the city. We have programs in the areas of zero waste, toxics reduction, healthy ecosystems, energy, climate action, and environmental justice. And um, while we've had an environmental justice program for over 20 years, we recognize that community leaders have been fighting for fighting environmental injustices, many of which were caused by government decisions for much, much longer. And one critical component of EJ is to recognize and support the longtime work of community leaders and to include them in decision making. Now, I had the opportunity to participate in the Environmental Justice Working Group and appreciated the planning department's um, inclusive and consensus building process that included both community leaders um, with deep historical knowledge as well as experience and city departments who often guide the provision of resources, services, and the development of policies. And the environmental justice framework has also helped bring city departments together so that there are more synergies in our work and there's a shared vision and goals for the city. There's also alignment between the EJ framework and the city's climate action plan. And some examples include the priorities of expanding nature-based solutions for a healthy and resilient environment, empowering community to plan for climate resilience and justice, um, ensuring streets and transit are accessible and safe for all, expanding housing choices citywide, and providing equitable and green jobs. Um, one extremely helpful aspect of the framework is the EJ Communities Map which is a robust tool that captures important data around racial and social disparities in San Francisco and will be useful across the city when prioritizing EJ communities and the distribution of resources and services. And our department has recently used the EJ communities map 
to describe the geographic focus of our environmental justice grants program. And I'd, I'd like to thank the planning department staff for um, coordinating this impressive work. Also thank our sister city agencies and for all the um, community, community leaders who participated in this process for their dedication. Um, I'm looking forward to continuing this partnership to implement the priorities identified in the framework. So thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. I'm Karen Pierce. I'm the environmental justice director of the uh, Population Health Division in the San Francisco Department of Public Health. And I was um, invited to become a part of this project very early on when um, the staff was developing the process that was going to be used. I'm, I'm going to speak on the process, not the content, although I think the content of the final project um, is wonderful, admirable. Um, as you've heard, it was unanimously adopted. The, the reason I'm going to focus on the process is because that's what environmental justice is about. It's about the process. Equity and environmental justice are not the same. And in order for us to reach equity, we need to employ the environmental justice process to our work. So um, given that, I, I do want to also point out earlier today, there was a discussion about um, community involvement and inclusion. And I want to suggest that the planning staff take a very close look at what um, was done with the project. Because except for one criticism, that we've had the community um, advocates and that I agree with 100% that they were invited in a little late. We need to be having the community at the table as we're beginning to discuss the projects and help with the design of the process. Given that um, the process was the most incredible environmental justice project I have ever worked on with city agencies. The staff needs to be applauded. They were the most productive, the most organized and focused, and they were absolutely committed to applying the principles of environmental justice to this work. As a result, we have a, a document that was unanimous, unanimous adopted, um, which is something I've never worked on in the past. I've always been a group that includes the, um, the minority report that points out where we went wrong. So I just want to encourage the, um, the planning department to really take a look and replicate this and to follow the, follow the advice of Diane Oshima. It's, it's the process. So the environmental justice work needs to be referred to every day. It needs to become an integral part of the work that is done by the, the department. And congratulations to Lisa and Danielle and all of the other staff in the department that worked on this. Thank you.
Okay, thank you. Does that conclude staff presentation? In that case, we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this matter. If you're in the chambers, please come forward and line up on the screen side of the room. And again, if you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three, or if you're on WebEx, just raise your hand. Hello, everyone. It's me again. <laughs> uh, my name is Sharia. I'm the executive director for the American Indian Cultural District. I was also part of the environmental justice framework. We also partnered with the Association of Ramatish Ohlone and the Cultural Conservancy, who've been doing work, obviously, as you all know who Ramatish are. Um, we worked for over two years, both in the Climate Action Plan and with the Environmental Justice Framework. It's without, you know, it's with purpose that you see things in there, focusing on traditional ecological knowledge, partnership with local American Indian communities and Native American tribes, both federally and non-federally recognized. I came from the state. I came from working with Department of Water Resources, working with EPA, and honestly, I was a little bit shocked and, and a little bit sad that this is one of the most liberal cities, supposedly, and I came here and there were literally zero policies in there in regards to working on traditional ecological knowledge or incorporating it or working with indigenous peoples and American Indian tribes, not even the minimal at the state or federal level, even mentioned in previous plans. So it's with a lot of intention in two years that they collaborated and this was really meaningful. And as a director of a district who recently just saw a mission plan come forward and we weren't even outreached even though it's legislated by planning and it's within our cultural district. Um, this is a really good example of starting early and working with the community and making sure that those policies that reflect our needs and our, our uh, intentions uh, to work with the American Indian community and to incorporate traditionally ecological knowledge, the first scientists, the first folks um, of this land, which has been proven successful by EPA, state, federal, um, all over, is really important. And so we put a lot of work into this, and so I really encourage you all to take the time to look forward and, and to adopt it, because there was a lot of work over the last two years, or at least the year with this, I kind of combined the climate action plan into these efforts because a lot of the language overlaps. So just want to say uh, it was a huge community process, really grateful and to the folks in planning who helped work with us. They were very responsive, very respectful. They checked back in with not just the cultural district, the Association of Ramatush Loney, the Cultural Conservancy, every step of the way to make sure indigenous American Indian voices were heard. So I just want to support uh, this environmental justice framework as part of the general plan because a lot of work went into it uh, with a lot of good meaning and good intention. So thank you. Thanks, Director uh, Sharia, for that. And uh, it's wonderful to be in this body today. It reminds me of how much I love San Francisco because we are really trying to do the right thing. And there's a lot of people who really know what they're doing. I just want to applaud the team that brought this to light. Uh, I'm Casey Rios Asbury. Uh, executive director of the Demonstration Gardens, uh, co-chair of the Tenderloin People's Congress. Uh, I work on environmental justice with the Congress, and uh, I was uh, honored to be a co-chair on the environmental justice framework. I, too, found planning ex extremely uh, responsive, empathic, uh, deliberate, uh, really took the uh, time to go the extra mile to bring people in. I, I want to stand in support of this forward motion. I want to say that we didn't produce a perfect work, but really had some significant victories. Uh, the environmental justice communities map 
is brilliant. It it's been a much needed innovation. Um, the inclusion in the moment of building the framework is exactly correct. What we need, I want to echo um, Director Oshima and Director Pierce in their remarks that we need to treat this as a working living document. And I encourage you, uh, commission and planners, to think in terms of how do we build ongoing living participation, institutionalize this from the community so that we're not recreating it over and over again and forgetting and remembering and having to um, reinvest those resources. Let's keep it going now that we've got it going. And uh, I, I'm just really grateful to be part of the work and uh, thank you for centering environmental improvements for our community in authentic community engagement. That's the most important principle. It's the first principle of uh, environmental justice. So thank you. Thank you. Seeing no additional members of the public in the chambers coming forward, we'll go to our remote callers. Greetings, planning uh, department commissioners. I'd like to acknowledge the EJ Framework Committee members for your committed work and planning department staff for your collaboration and excellent support. My name is Angelique Tompkins, Bayview Hunters Point resident and community advocate and a member of the Bayview Alliance, a think tank of professionals and community leaders who engage, listen, and respond to the needs of Bayview Hunters Point community. Bayview Alliance convened a focus group of CBO representatives and allies that work on climate resilience and environmental justice with intersections for health and wellness, safety and support of human services to address California State Bill 1000 on behalf of the Bayview Hunters Point community. We are pleased that broad recommendations from this convening are contained within the EJ framework draft. We support adoption of the SF environmental justice framework and amendments to the introduction to the general plan. Within the draft, it is stated, governance should foster environmental justice through processes that address, mitigate, and amend past injustices while enabling proactive community-led solutions for the future. As there is reference to past injustices, it is essential that reparations context is included in the EJ framework. The draft references interagency partners, the Department of the Environment, Rec and Park, DPH, and PUC, for example, that will be responsible for implementations of the policies and priorities. However, at present, the San Francisco Human Rights Commission is not explicitly noted as a resource, although it is an essential body to ensure environmental justice accountability. The San Francisco African American Reparations Council convened by the SFHRC released the reparations plan draft to which the Bayview Alliance also contributed recommendations that align with EJ framework priorities. We presented a narrative addressing environmental health and environmental injustices within our black communities based upon health impacts research and science-based evidence detailing specific harms findings and implications to individuals and in aggregate. Bayview Alliance 
proposed objectives and actions were adopted verbatim into the reparations plan, health section objective four, actions 4.2 and 4.3. We propose these recommendations work are integrated into the EJ framework with implementation responsibility to include the SF Human Rights Commission as a key resource as environmental justice is a human rights matter. Thank you for your time and effort. Nalti, um, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Um, yes, Nalti, N U L T Y. Yes, I think that the, this is an important um, chapter that the, the city has finally gone through as far as uh, planning for the environment. Um, uh, you know, there's been a host of uh, people in the past uh, coming to the Planning Commission and other. Uh, bodies of city talking about equity and a lot of times uh, we're not heard because uh, of uh, other issues that are at play when trying to plan things for the for the community and uh, this finally we have a framework to go by and it's very important that uh, this uh, this doesn't just um, sit somewhere that it actually gets implemented and uh, used on a regular basis uh, by the various city departments um, when uh, future development and other um, environmental uh, planning happens um, in our communities. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Last call for public comment. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you. Thank you. I want to just uh, thank those who called in, who are here giving testimony for all the city staff and agencies that are a part of this. I mean, what a great process um, with a really tremendous outcome. And so I just want to just recognize the great work. I'm very excited to have been kept abreast of it along the way um, and to see it come to fruition today and kind of at least one more milestone um, on its way. I think one of the things that's really valuable and that Taylor uh, Emerson from Rec Park mentioned is just the mapping project, which I know getting the data sets, getting that map, I'm sure was not easy, um, but the result is something that we can really continue to update and really see literally how are we able to turn the dial in terms of the environmental justice outcome so eventually we hope that those areas that are red and yellow turn greener and greener over time. And so we can have both accountability, you know, are the things that we do work? I think, especially when we have big, big, big problems we're trying to solve. Sometimes it's like, are we making progress? Or, you know, where are we making progress? And how can we be ensured that the intentions we're putting out and the activities we're doing are actually adding up to the outcomes that we want to see in our communities? So I think it was great Taylor's example of you know, Rec Park using that to allocate discretionary resources. And so other city agencies can also think, what does this map tell them about where they should literally be placing the resources, the communities they should be serving, and how they can make their investments. So it, it strikes me that, um, and I don't know, Ms. Chen, if you have thoughts around how we can or should continue to socialize this as it gets adopted amongst city agencies more broadly, because I get the sense there's like a, a really tight, dedicated group of people who are working on it and have been working on it for two years and I don't want this to kind of get adopted but kind of be a little bit silent in terms of its potential impact for others who maybe didn't need to be at the table in meetings but could use this in their work and can apply it to their work. So could you say a little bit about how we might socialize with other departments or maybe that work's already taken place um, with this framework? 
Sure, that's that's a great question. I think it's one that we've wrestled with throughout the project, and um, I think it's common to a lot of our general planning work because you know it is kind of at that mile high level. And then how do we make sure that the plans aren't sitting on a shelf and that we're using them as living documents? Um, and so I would just say, um, you know, there has been a really tremendous experience, um, very humbling for us on the staff side to really open the doors and think about how do we co-develop these policies with community members. Um, and as you heard um, today from both the city members and the community members, I think there's a lot of appetite for that. And um, we would like to see more processes like that. And um, so as you know, through our racial and social equity work and our community engagement work, I think there's a lot of models that we can kind of, you know, kind of uh, build off of this work. Um, but then in terms of the actual document itself, um, you know, we really do see this as a phase one of the work. Um, and we know that there's many elements of the general plan that we um, haven't updated in a long time and that really do need a refresh. And so we are hoping to take this foundation and really build on it. Um, and I think, you know, we have a really great um, set of recommendations from the working group itself, many of which, you know, we weren't able to get as detailed as we wanted to. And so I think there's a lot of next steps from there too, so. Right, we look forward to seeing more of that coming forward and um, perhaps even the intersection with our racial equity tool in our department and how we're using it, what can what pieces of this can be lifted up and used there to help to understand projects that are coming forward, um, policies and things like that that are brought forward to the commission. So great work. Um, and I'm going to call on Commissioner Braun and then Commissioner Moore. Yes, uh, my, my comments are kind of along the same lines as President Tanner's. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you to everyone who participated in the process of developing this, both on the part of staff, as well as all the community members and organizations that were involved. Um, I think that for those of us who work very directly in the field of planning, including on general plans like myself, uh, I there is always a worry that they're going to be just plans that sit on a shelf. And it seems like this approach is, a, I can't think of anything better I've seen in terms of really um, engaging with the community so that implementation, uh, that process, there are people who are holding that process accountable and all the different departments accountable. People, you know, there's a broader awareness of the community, it becomes the community's plan. So um, I really appreciate that uh, to ensure that this is implemented. And then also the level of interagency coordination, interdepartmental coordination is really great to see. Uh, I, you know, even though the planning department is responsible for creating the general plan elements, it's the plan for the whole city. And so uh, including all the departments that are actually going to have to implement this plan and follow it, uh, it seems like kind of a no-brainer. And yet, uh, you know, <laughs> this is often it doesn't go as far as it needs to. So I mostly just want to say um, thank you so much and, and I appreciate it. And I do, uh, I am also appreciative of the approach of, of sort of uh, incorporating the environmental justice framework throughout the plan uh, and treating it that way instead of sort of a standalone element that um, can be, that isn't necessarily a, a through line through the whole thing. And thank goodness for updating the uh, general plan introduction as well, because I, I kind of couldn't believe it when I saw the old uh, introduction that's, that's being superseded. So yeah, thank you. Thanks, Commissioner Braun. Commissioner Moore. Again, thank you to an incredible group of planners. Uh, large numbers, huge resources dedicated. The quality of what, in front, what is in front of us testifies to what you all can do. Thank you also to all city agencies who seem to have not only engaged in a major uh, effort, but also really contributed to the success of what we're seeing today. Uh, I'd like to suggest that 
We are moving immediately into phase two, and we'll be asking the director to find ways to budget that we have sufficient resources so that the AJ uh, document can help us create metrics as we're moving into the implementation of the housing element. I think this will be a lifetime opportunity to refocus the physical environment that we are engaging on building as it involves major changes in the city and with this particular framework, we will be able to account to ourselves what we are approving. We will not only be pushed by numbers, but we'll be pushed by data which will force us to equitably and responsibly weigh every decision we make. And each of us will not just kind of be voting based on allegiances or preconceived notions, but on an honest accountability of what needs to be done. And we had plenty of opportunity today to hear in different projects and different presentations what it will take for us to be not only be socially and racially equitable, but really understanding the consequences of our own decisions on the environment. So I think this is a fabulous moment, and I hope that Director Hillis will be able to push and help get us budget allocations for the department to successfully do that. Great. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Just before you respond, Director, I just want to support that comment because there's quite a number of areas, even just looking at the summaries in the PowerPoint, where it's like nature-based solutions, green infrastructure, urban greening, um, community planning, distribution of public facilities. That's very in line with what we've been talking about with the housing element and literally how the housing is built or curbs that are recreated, sidewalks that are re reconstructed as part of a new building. And those are opportunities to do the greening and to have these co-benefits. So I think equitable transportation, mm -hmm, all and of that. And, and, and. So just so much alignment, as you mentioned, Ms. Chen, between the housing element and this work, and so just another chance to bring that forward. And thank you for those comments. I mean, because we struggle with this, like to make sure that the document is living and continues to have impacts on on decision making, policy decision making from from all agencies. And I think what's what was important here, and you heard it in comments, was. It's not just the content of ultimately what was in the document, which I think was bold and meaningful and set us on a course, but how we got there and the, the process of that. And it was, you know, a, a great process. I participated in, in some of the meetings, and Lisa and Danielle deserve a trem tremendous amount of credit because I think that's going to ultimately help carry this document and make it relevant was how we did it and who was included in this decision making and, and the fact that you know, eight, it was city agencies as well as community, but it was a process where, where we ultimately, everybody bought into it, but it didn't water down what was in the document. It was, it was a, a bold document and set us on a course um, that, that I think is, is, is relevant for, for where we're going and the housing element and other elements. So um, we've got to continue that work and we really set this as an example of how we do that, that future planning and making sure that the engagement is authentic and meaningful. Absolutely, and I think to, for those uh, community members in the room who help participate and who are listening or who are not here, I think just continuing to be engaged with staff. And I, again, I think the challenge is like we're end of the project, but it's really the beginning of the project. And so um, what does it mean to carry it forward and whose work plan is it on and like what does that mean um, to have that be part of their work um, kind of very, very timely today with our budget con discussion. Before I go to Commissioner Braun, I did have a question for Ms. Chen um, about the caller who talked about reparations and kind of really linking into, I mean, again, 
layering in with, again, other city agencies doing work on reparations, which you know is going to continue. Um, I know that we do mention undoing past harms, which to me is a direct connection. I don't know if you could speak to whether or not it's appropriate or you could look into how we could better connect this document to the work that's going to be continuing, obviously, in another realm, but very adjacent to um, the work that is, I think, at the heart of the EJ framework itself. Mm -hmm. Yes, certainly. And, um, you know, that I think that public comment is really well taken. Um, so, you know, we did have the HRC as one of the um, members of our working group. Um, but I think this is a good example of, you know, documents that, that were um, developed at different times, different agencies, and so there aren't actually direct references to the, um, the reparations committee in the framework now, um, but we can certainly look to make those adjustments for the adoption draft, and, and we really do want this framework to be supportive of that effort, too. And certainly it could reference, because that document itself is a draft, right, and so it's going to change, but maybe it's referencing that body of work that's being led by that agency, which will take its own shape yet to be determined um, how that will continue. And so I know it's maybe not uh, exact, but just laying those breadcrumbs um, that will help to link these efforts, I think, is really important. Uh, Commissioner Moore, Commissioner Braun, did you have further comments or questions? I wanted to make a comment about putting on my coat that is not dis uh, disrespectful to you. I am not leaving. It is extremely cold up here. Uh, and it's for that reason that I ask for your understanding for my coat. Thank you, Commissioner Moore. Commissioner Braun. Uh, I just want to move to approve the, the initiation um, and maybe adding in just some guidance that there's consideration of um, the uh, integration of some of the work uh, around reparations or examining how that might be included in the document for the adoption draft. Second. There's no further deliberation, commissioners. There is a motion that has been seconded to adopt a resolution to initiate um, with a recommendation to uh, examine reparations. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So move, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously seven to zero and places us on item nine for case number 2020-005491 ENV for the 2022 hotel conversion ordinance amendments. This is a preliminary negative declaration appeal. As we prepare for this, commissioners, would you like to take a break for a few moments? We'll take a five minute break, thank you. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
That's the way it's on the calendar, yeah. This meeting is being recorded. Okay. Um, good afternoon and welcome back to the San Francisco Planning Commission regular hearing for Thursday, January 26th. Commissioners, we left off under your regular calendar for item nine. Case number 2020-005491 ENV for the 2022 Hotel Conversion Ordinance Amendments. This is an appeal of the preliminary negative declaration. Hello, excuse me. Uh, uh, may I please uh, give a few remarks before Michael Lee begins his presentation, is that okay? Thank you, President uh, Tanner. Um, before Michael Lee begins, I would like to note uh, that this will be his final Planning Commission hearing as Planning Department staff. After 18 years of exceptional service at the Department, Michael's going to transfer to the Bureau of Planning and Environmental Affairs at the San Francisco International Airport. Tomorrow is his last day with us. Yeah. Uh, Michael began working for the planning department as an intern, and he worked his way up to a senior planner uh, as uh, in the Northeast Quadrant of current planning. And after 10 years in the department, he went to work as a private environmental consultant for six years. And then he came back because he loved us so much. He returned to the planning department and worked for us uh, for the last eight years in environmental planning. Um, among his many contributions, Michael has been our department's top wind and shadow technical specialist. He's been environmental coordinator for many projects, including the India Basin Mixed Use Project EIR uh, and two airport EIRs, including the San Francisco Shoreline Protection Plan uh, EIR. And he's also a resident expert for us on all things Star Wars and Legos. He will be sorely missed. At least we can take comfort knowing that he is uh, continuing to do good work for the city and he's just a BART ride or airplane ride, as it were, away. Thank you, Michael. Well, before thank you begin your presentation, we just want to thank you for your service to the city. Um, and just thank you, Lisa, for bringing forward just the summary of his great career. We're glad you're going to another sister agency. And, you know, you could come back again in the future uh, if you ever need arises. But thank you for your service and for being with us here today. Uh, thank you. Um, one thing I know for certain is that if your flight is delayed or canceled, I won't be able to help you. <laughs> uh, President Tanner, members of the commission, uh, Michael Lee from the Environmental Planning Division. Uh, this item is an appeal of a preliminary negative declaration for the proposed 2022 hotel conversion ordinance amendments. The legislation is being sponsored by Board of Supervisors President Aaron Peskin. The Planning Commission is not required to take any action on the legislation itself because it's an amendment to the administrative code and not the planning code. In 2017, uh, the Board of Supervisors adopted legislation to amend the hotel conversion ordinance. The 2017 legislation changed the length of tenancy for tourist and transient use under the hotel conversion ordinance from seven days to 32 days. The planning department determined that the 2017 legislation did not constitute a project under CEQA, and that determination was the subject of a lawsuit filed by the San Francisco SRO Hotel Coalition. In September 2019, 
the San Francisco Superior Court issued a court order voiding the city's adoption of the 2017 legislation. The court found that the 2017 legislation constitutes a project under CEQA and required the city to conduct environmental review prior to proceeding with any amendments to the hotel conversion ordinance. The original 2017 legislation has been revised and the 2022 legislation would amend the hotel conversion ordinance as follows. It would add a definition of tourist or transient use, which does not uh, currently exist today. It would set the length of tenancy for such use at less than seven days, but only for the first two years after the effective date of the ordinance. It would set the length of tenancy for such use at less than 30 days following the initial two-year period. Uh, it would provide an amortization period applicable to hotels regulated under this ordinance, and that's the aforementioned two-year period. Um, it would provide a process for owners and operators of regulated hotels uh, to apply for an extension of the amortization period. And finally, it would amend the definition of a permanent resident from a person who occupies a room for 32 days to a person who occupies a room for 30 days. No physical development projects are proposed as part of this legislation. In compliance with the court order, the department conducted environmental review for the 2022 legislation and published a preliminary negative declaration, or PND, on October 19, 2022. The PND concluded that the project would not result in any significant environmental impacts. The PND was circulated for a public review period of 20 days and the PND was appealed on November 8th, 2022. The appeal states that the PND does not adequately address the project's impacts related to the following topics. Housing affordability for low-income tenants, land use impacts, displacement of tenants, homelessness, urban decay and blight, and socioeconomic impacts. The appellant submitted a supplemental appeal letter yesterday but no new issues were raised. In addition to the appeal, the department received three inquiries requesting more information about the legislation, but these inquiries did not raise any environmental concerns. As stated in the department's appeal response, the PND adequately analyzes all topics in the CEQA checklist, including its analysis of impacts related to housing affordability, land use and planning, and population and housing. Um, the last of which addresses displacement. The court order specifically rejected the argument that displacement results in homelessness or urban decay and blight. Therefore, an analysis of impacts related to these topics was not required in the PND. The department did not find that the project would result in any physical changes to the environment. Therefore, an analysis of socioeconomic impacts was not required in the PND. Through the PND and the appeal response, the department has addressed all issues raised in the appeal. The PND adequately analyzes all topics in the CEQA checklist and the appellant has not provided substantial evidence supporting a fair argument that the project would result in significant environmental impacts and would require an environmental impact report. The department's recommendation is that you reject the appeal and uphold the PND and I'm available to answer any questions uh, related to CEQA that you might have. 
Uh, in addition, Sonny Angulo, uh, representing uh, Board President Aaron Peskin, is here. Uh, she can answer questions about the proposed legislation and the intent behind it. Uh, earlier, Matt Luton from the Department of Building Inspection uh, was with us. Uh, I'm not sure if he's uh, still available now, but if he is, he can answer questions about uh, how the hotel conversion ordinance is implemented. Uh, one final note is we uh, submitted some minor revisions to the negative declaration. Um, this is a three-sentence summary about the appeal proceeding, and if you uh, decide to reject the appeal and uphold the negative declaration, that new language should be incorporated into the uh, final document. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the appellant? You have five minutes. Good afternoon, President Tanner and commissioners. My name is Brian O'Neill, and I represent the appellant in this case, Hotel des Arts. As you've heard, the amendments being evaluated will increase the minimum stay for SRO units from seven days to 30 days. The proposal is similar to 2017 amendments that increased the minimum from seven to 32 days. The amendments were overturned by a court which found it was reasonably foreseeable that the amendments would cause SRO owners to charge monthly rents and security deposits that would lead to SRO occupants being displaced. A negative declaration is only proper if there is no substantial evidence that amendment may have a significant effect. Otherwise, an EIR is required. The PND, rather than rebut appellant's arguments, confirmed that the amendments will lead to displacement of SRO occupants and contribute directly to impacts such as blight and urban decay. It's quite obvious and multiple courts have found that increasing the minimum stay requirement will cause SRO owners to charge monthly instead of weekly rents and to require security deposits. The idea that SRO owners will give individuals the right to stay in units for a month but not ask for payment defies common sense. The PND completely ignores that these amendments will put SRO units out of reach for more than a third of all households who can afford an upfront monthly payment and deposit. And this will impact a far greater percentage of SRO occupants. The city has repeatedly acknowledged that SRO units are an important part of the solution to homelessness and provide a temporary stepping stone toward more permanent housing. Rent in privately owned SROs is typically between $650 and $700 a month. We already know that SRO occupants have difficulty covering this expense. Over the last three years, almost a quarter of all court-ordered evictions were in SRO units, even though barely more than 1% of renters reside in SROs. Data shows that almost a majority of even employed homeless individuals earn less than the average monthly SRO rent. While week-to-week -week SRO units are not the ideal, if these amendments go into effect, a person will have no other option but the street. The PND assumes that occupants of only 64 units out of an estimated 19,000 SROs citywide will be displaced. This assumption is based on responses that DBI received to the annual unit usage report that identified the 2017 amendments as a reason for a vacancy. 
the PND acknowledges that there is a low response rate to its usage report survey, and the raw data does not reflect the actual number of SRO units. The PND also acknowledges that many SROs were not complying with the 32-day minimum. Of course, SRO owners will not identify the 2017 amendments as a reason for a vacancy when the city was not enforcing and the SROs were not complying with the 32-day minimum. And finally, the DBA reporting form only asks SRO, SRO owners to provide a reason for vacancy when 50% of the units are vacant. That means the 64 reported vacancies used in the PND are based on a fraction of the actual SRO owners who submitted reports, an even smaller fraction of reporting SROs that complied with the 2017 amendments, and an even smaller fraction of reporting complying SROs that had more than a 50% vacancy rate. The idea that 64 units is the top end number is simply erroneous. And finally, none of the underlying data relied on the relied upon was made available. We submitted an immediate disclosure sunshine request on December 1st, and just this morning, two months after the, uh, after the request, on the day of the hearing, we received over 1,000 pages of documents in response to our request. CEQA guidelines section 15150 states that where a document is incorporated by reference, the document shall be made available to the public. Despite repeated references to the usage reports, that information hasn't been shown to the commission or the public. While it's clear on the face that the assumptions in the PND, PND are inaccurate and there is already substantial evidence in the record to require an EIR, the fact that this information was unlawfully held, uh, withheld is reason enough not to adopt the PND today. Thank you. Thank you. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the Commission on this matter. You need to come forward if you're in the chambers. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star 3. If you're on WebEx, you need to just raise your hand. Seeing no request to speak, Commissioners, I take it back. There is a remote caller. Actually, um with, I'm the program director of Tennis Association Coalition, and we're made up of uh, SROs throughout the city. Um, I would like to, to see the commission uh, withhold the, the appeal with uh, the, um, in regards to the PND. Um, I think there's enough evidence to prove that there's still needs, or at least continue the item if there's a need for that too. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any other public commenters? Last call for public comment. Seeing no additional request to speak, Commissioner's public comment is closed and this appeal is now before you. Thank you. I'd like, Ms. Angulo, if you can come and share a little bit about the origin of the legislation, because I think there's a couple matters before us. One is obviously the PND itself, but underlying that is the proposed legislation. And if you could just shed a little light around the intention and what's the, what's the intended outcome of the legislation that um, is kind of part of this uh, PND. Well, this legislation, and I and council should let me know if there's anything I'm not supposed to be saying, but I, you know, this legislation w was essentially a effort on the part of the city to really try to, I think, mitigate and address some of the concerns that 
the appellants who are also the who have are also the appellants not just of this uh, negative uh, deck this morning, but also of the original 2017 hotel conversion ordinance update. Uh, and so over the course of many, you know, uh, deputy city attorneys have represented us in, in the courts and before the, uh, the judge that was sort of hearing both sides of this. We've done our due diligence in terms of trying to address their concerns around CEQA. I certainly have my own feelings about whether or not this is a <laughs> legislation needed to undergo CEQA, but uh, the judge felt like it was that was appropriate. We did that. Um, the conversations, you know, continued. The judge, I think, at one point, and counsel can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think was the one that brought up, "Have you guys thought about amortization? Like, is this something that um, you know the city would be open to?" or and so really, this legislation is an effort to, to try to just put, like, let's, let's move on, let's let, get this legislation into, um, because, I mean, there's a lot, the, the focus has been really on this, the tenancy, the term of the tenancy. There's so much more in this update that was really um, trying to bring our hotel conversion ordinance out of the, the dark ages and really update it for a modern era. Um, and I think there's a lot of really, you know, useful things that certainly the Department of Building Inspections in particular around reporting that are very important. It's important for us to get this legislation, you know, done and implemented. And so this is really an attempt to try to reach a compromise. Um, you know, two years is frankly you know, I, I, I felt like it should be a lot shorter, but that, you know, this was, this was the compromise. This was our way of saying this is reasonable. This is a reasonable amount of time for you all to recoup the alleged loss of revenue. And there's a path. If they there's a process, they say they need more, then there's that mm -hmm. path that's also available. Right. Um, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for working uh, yes, on this legislation yeah. for a number of years. Um, thank and, you. I guess I just want to say to my fellow commissioners, you know, I kind of see a couple issues here. You know, there's a legislation itself, which isn't before us, is really whether or not the city performed the adequate level of environmental review, um, as I understand, ordered uh, by the court, um, which it seems to me that, that we have. And in particular, what I kind of looking in the, the reports around the impacts that are that are concerned about that this will lead to displacement of tenants and then the tenants would become unhoused and then contribute in that way to, I suppose, environmental challenge in the areas where they're displaced. Seems to me, and I think staff adequately, again, my understanding of CEQA, that it's a socioeconomic impact and there's not necessarily an environmental impact. Obviously, we don't want to have legislation that would advance displacement or lead to more displacement as a rule, but again, under CEQA, was the analysis of the environmental impacts of the legislation adequate? Um, at this level. And so that's kind of where I, again, uh, not knowing uh, the details of all the history of the legislation and the record, I think that the um, the negative declaration to me seems to be adequate. I, I would ask Ms. Gibson about the comment we just heard around the availability of documents. That was a little concerning to me, and I don't know if staff have any insight into the availability of documents being made in a timely manner or not. Um, that That is a bit concerning. Uh, Michael Lee, we did receive a public records request for that information. Uh, internally, we provided uh, all of the records 
to our uh, internal staff who handle those requests. And they then worked in collaboration with the city attorney's office to review all of the documents um, and uh, anything that was uh, considered uh, attorney-client privilege or confidential was, uh, was not shared. Um, but as far as the, the delay itself, that was um, you know, the internal vetting process. Is it accurate that they were just transmitted today to the appellant? I think it was either yesterday or today. It was this morning. So that, that is a bit concerning in terms of just time. I'm not sure if how that bears into our decision to make a decision today or to make a decision in the future, but that is concerning to have documents just be transmitted a day before the hearing um, for someone who's trying to prepare to uh, make their argument before this public body. With that, I'm going to turn to Commissioner Imperial and Commissioner Diamond. Um, thank you for asking that question about the, the region of the hotel conversion legislation. Um, as I was part of the committee back then, I believe um, the intent of this legislation was to prevent the displacement of SRO, um, low-income people who are living in the SRO and replacement for tourist use. Um, during that time, there was a lot of um, trends where, um, especially, um, you know, in some of the low-income SROs are being used where community members are noticing that instead of, um, you know, um, as part of a train, you know, from homeless to finding a temporary space that tourists are starting to um, um, move in. And so that was kind of like the, you know, the, I, I believe that was the intention of the legislation is to prevent homelessness in, as the tourists are booming around that time. Um, and so, so in that case, you know, if for this um, hotel conversion, many of the community members supported this legislation. Um, so that's what I can say in the community perspective. Um, however, in this PMD, I believe that the city also find um, adequate in what we are, how is this going to create an impact population, housing impact, um, land use and planning impact, and, and even if we're talking about the urban decay, I mean, these were kind of like what was the original intent of the legislation is to prevent urban decay um, in order to prevent further um, displacement or homelessness. Um, so, so yeah, so that's where my, my comments are. Thank you, Commissioner Perio, for that also insight into kind of the origin uh, of the legislation. Commissioner Diamond? Uh, this is a question for the city attorney. Um, is it a concern that these documents were only made available today? Did that somehow, you know, hurt the appellant and that we should give them more time to respond? Thank you for that question, uh, Commissioner Diamond. This is Deputy City Attorney Kristen Jensen. I did not review, review those documents myself, so I don't know what was contained in them, but this matter has been litigated um, for years, as was noted already. I understand that most of the documents that were produced were probably documents that were already available in the record from the previous litigation. I don't know what was other than or in addition to documents they've seen in the past. So I can't really answer whether they might have wanted to rely on anything that was in that batch. Uh, but what I can tell you is that, you know, the city produced these as quickly as they could. The Public Records Act request was received just prior to the holidays, as I understand it. People go on vacation, people go on sick leave. The work was done as quickly as it could, and there was no intent to delay them. 
So yeah, I, I'm not concerned with how much time it took to provide them. I understand that can take time. I, I just want to make sure that from your perspective um, and also from the perspective of environmental planning um, that you feel like we don't need to give more time to the appellant. And, and is the answer we don't from your perspective? I do not believe we need to give the appellant more time, no. Okay, okay, thank you for that clarification. Um, I, <laughs> it feels like, you know, when I read it through several times, because it's kind of hard to get your head around, I mean, we're not looking at the underlying legislation, we're looking at the um, CEQA documents, and the argument for the legislation is so closely related to the argument that the appellants are raising um, in the CEQA documents that it is, you know, to separate the two, totally get and understand that the intent of the legislation is to preserve the SROs um, for longer-term residents and not for short stays for, for tourists that are coming. Um, but I hear the appellant staying. He thinks that the short stay is being used for the unhoused population. Am I under? I think that's what I'm hearing, and that somehow that there are displacement um, or other impacts that are caused by uh, eliminating the short stay. It does feel like those fall into the category of um, socioeconomic impacts, as I read through the document. So uh, I'm supportive of the PMND or the. Um, as as written, um, unless any of you saw it any differently than that. But I will say it was, you know, um, a, it's not about the, the validity of the, or the, um, the underlying legislation that we're talking about, whether we like it or don't like it, it has to do simply with whether or not we think the impacts have been um, adequately analyzed. I, I guess the one issue I have for staff is it strikes me that one of the impacts of the legislation is there are now fewer tourist rooms available. Um, and do you feel like, you know, that creates any impact that wasn't adequately addressed? Fewer tourist rooms, it's fewer low-cost tour rooms. Uh, tourist rooms, I guess, is the way to look at it more specifically. In an era where we have a lot of vacancies in hotels. Uh, Michael Lee. Um, Based on some recent uh, city data, uh, there is a, a tourist hotel vacancy um, that has ranged from 14% uh, to 33%. So even if uh, some tourists would not be able to stay in these rooms, there are vacancies elsewhere in the hotel market that could accommodate them. Thank you for that data. Thank you, Commissioner Diamond. Commissioner Moore? Uh, Thank you for your thoughtful comments, Commissioner Imperial, Commissioner Diamond. I think it helps us a lot to understand the breadth of the questions. However, having great trust in the environmental work this department does, and given the fact that this project has been litigated before, nothing really has changed other than COVID shifting numbers from one side to the other. In the end, it is uh, independent questions about tourist-occupied lower-fee hotels versus our urgent uh, homes population or SRO population being securely uh, housed in those rooms. So I am comfortable with uh, what has been studied and what is in front of us, and I make a motion to uphold uh, the uh, bill. Second. Okay.
There's no further deliberation, commissioners. There's a motion that has been seconded. Excuse me, Mr. Secretary. Do we need to read the addition into the record that was yes, provided? Thank you. My motion includes the amendments and additions to the uh, uh, document. And there is a motion that has been seconded to uphold a negative declaration with the amendment submitted. Second. As staff, with by staff. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners, a motion passes unanimously seven to zero. Commissioners, items 10A and B have were considered out of order, placing us on item 11 for case number 2022-000404-CUA at 345 Rivera Street. This is a conditional use authorization. I need to make a disclosure. Yes, uh, Commissioner Diamond needs to make a disclosure. Yes, I wanted to let the other commissioners um, and the public know that um, Mr. Brett Gladstone is the attorney uh, for the project applicant and that one of the other lawyers at his firm is someone who I retained for a personal matter that's not related to Rivera. That relationship ended almost two years ago. I believe I can be completely impartial in my evaluation um, of this particular matter. Thank you, Commissioner Diamond. Uh, good afternoon, President Tanner, fellow commissioners, Jeff Horn, Planning Department staff. The item before you is a request for conditional use authorization uh, per Planning Code Section 303 and 317 to legalize tantamount to demolition that occurred to a residential building. The project proposes to legalize the tantamount to demolition of an approximately, or of a 2,962 gross square foot, two-story, one-family dwelling with a, uh, previously with a UDU uh, that occurred during the construction of 1,192 square feet of additions and alterations to allow for a 1,000 sorry 4,154 gross square foot two-family dwelling. The main uh, 1,407 square foot three-bedroom unit would be expanded to 2,600 square feet, and a 566 square foot uh, unpermitted dwelling unit, which has now been legalized through the planning through planning's process. Uh, would be expanded to 659 square feet. The, uh, the 895 square foot ground floor provides common areas, two class one bicycle parking spaces and one vehicle, uh, A1 vehicle garage. The project is located on the south side of Rivera Street between 14th Avenue and the undeveloped remainder of Rivera Street, which, also, which leads into the Hawk Hill open space. The site is a 25 foot by 100, uh, 25 foot wide by 100 foot deep, steeply lateral sloping lot containing the two-story residential building that is currently in a state of suspended construction. The subject property previously previously received department approval for vertical additions and alterations, including the legalization of an unauthorized dwelling unit. The approval included a discretionary review hearing at the Planning Commission on October 4th, 2018. The commission determined that. Uh, exceptional and extraordinary circumstances existed and that modifications to the project were necessary to conform to the residential design guidelines related to scale and proportions. Uh, and these changes included that uh, the second floor height should be reduced and that windows and other facade elements that uh, should better be proportioned in size to be compatible with the neighboring context. In response to the commission's modifications, the sponsor revised the design by reducing the height of the second floor by two feet, uh, which resulted in also in a two foot reduction of the ultimate height of the building. 
The height of the front windows at the second floor's facade were reduced and wood panel Juliet balconies were added to further reduce the proportions of visible glazing. The plans before you today uh, are the same as the proposed, or proposed as the same as the plans that were ultimately approved by the department. On October 29th, uh, 2021, the department opened a complaint for a suspected demolition without permits. During a site inspection, it was confirmed that additional horizontal and vertical envelope elements were removed from the original approved work, which exceeded the building permit and planning department approvals. Subsequently, building permit applications were suspended to provide an opportunity for the project sponsor to accurately revise the scope of work and allow the planning department time to review the total horizontal and vertical removal. The department confirmed um, during a site visit that more than 50% of all vertical elements and more than 50% of horizontal elements had been removed. And as the total amount of removal exceeded the tantamount to demolition thresholds, a section 7317 conditional use was required, which is here before you today. Uh, the department has received one correspondence uh, with concerns related to the demolition section 17 findings and provided photographs of the building prior to construction uh, and the current state of the uh, the mid-construction state of the site uh, one final note uh, staff erroneously omitted the community liaison condition of approval which is a, a standard condition of approval for all projects uh, we would request this be added to the motion uh, and to be condition of approval number 15. Therefore, staff recommends that the commission approve this project with modifications to add the community liaison uh, condition of approval on the basis that the, depart that the project is on balance consistent with the intent and goals of the RH1 zoning district and the objectives and policies of the general plan. The project proposes to legalize a tantamount to demolition of a two-family dwelling, which includes the, legal the legalization of an unpermitted dwelling unit and the expansion of a family-sized unit. The department also finds the project to be necessary and desirable and compatible with surrounding neighborhood and to not be detrimental to persons or the adjacent properties in the vicinity. Uh, the project sponsor will now make a presentation and I'm available for any questions. Thank you. Project sponsor, you have five minutes. <clears throat> Hello, good evening, commissioners. Brett Gladstone, land use attorney representing the project sponsor, Benjamin Yip, who used to live in this home. Uh, first, thank you to Jeffrey for uh, handling the matter for this last year. As you heard, it's a 2,962 square feet non-historic building. There's going to be um, an increase to 4,154 square feet through the addition of a third floor, addition of two and a half baths, addition of a home office, upgrading the illegal unit to make it more habitable, and enlarge all bedrooms to create sufficient closet space. Uh, the renovation application was filed seven years ago. There was a DR. Uh, at the DR hearing of October 4, Commissioner Moore agreed with the neighbor uh, that top floor was too tall and should be lowered. And Commissioner Moore also had objections to some of the volume and there were setbacks created and objections to some of the windows and for privacy reasons, those changes were made uh, pursuant to staff um, follow-up from the commission um, and a motion was made to work with staff to refine. Uh, took almost a year and a half for DBI and your department to actually approve those revisions and the alteration permit was issued in 2020. There were no appeals, which means the design became final. Um, during the renovation process, inspectors were called in at key points to do the usual inspections before items were covered up. 
Unfortunately, due to COVID, um, that slowed the renovation project for about a year because those inspectors were not very available and a lot of people left that department. The neighbors complained about over demolition in September of 2021. Work stopped October 2021. A 317 application was made uh, over a year ago and it's taken a year for that to reach you due to, I think, lower priorities at planning for uh, projects that don't create housing for the first, lower priorities if you don't create housing for the first time. Uh, during the renovation, the contractor advised the architects that due to water intrusion and unsuspected large foundation cracks, more elements had to be removed than originally anticipated. And he started that process of obtaining revisions to show that the actual amount of removal was going to be greater. Obviously, the contractor should have done all that before he started removing too many vertical units and many contractors know better. I'm not sure they all do and I may have a comment about that later and I think I made a comment about that in my written presentation as to how we might change that in the future and let contractors know. Anyway, my, contract, my client was not in the country. He wishes he was to supervise. Um, during the time revisions were being made, there was a, a request for uh, NOV and that was issued. So my client's been unable to live here for four years. I ask that you take a look at condition approval six in your motion. It states that commissioners and staff can continue to revise the design um, and that was cut and paste from the DR decision. As you know, the commission changed the design. No appeals were taken from that design change. It became final, um, except for some minor revisions staff had to follow through on Commissioner Moore's comments. No appeal was made, so it seems to me that the odd that there can still be changes, and I ask that you look at that and wonder whether that's appropriate. Your approval will also allow the second unit to be occupied by a member of the public for the first time in seven, uh, maybe 10 years. I believe there was no tenant for 10 years. Um, by the way, that second unit was installed without permits by a previous owner and was not up to code and my client's application upgrades that as well as legalize it. So while not meaning to excuse work beyond the scope of the permit, I think my client has paid his dues both figuratively and literally. Literally, he's paid fines for the notice of violation for the work. Uh, he's also had holding costs for additional years. Figuratively, he's paid his dues because he's been unable to occupy for an additional couple of years. We have a housing crisis. I know you're trying to put housing units back in cir circulation. There's even a fine now for certain owners who don't rent out their units. I ask you to take that into account and hope you'll approve this tonight. Thank you for your time. Okay, commissioners, if there's no immediate questions, we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this matter. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. SFGov, can we go to the doc cam? Uh, it's interesting. Hi, 
Good afternoon, Georgia Shudish. I, I was actually here for general public comment in October 4th, 2018, and I talked about the demo calcs then, and I talked about um, the, um, the, con the projects that were like on a continuum of demolition. And I, I wanted to say that for this project, we shouldn't just look at one project, the, um, but we need to look at all of them that happened in that continuum in those years that I've been talking about it. And just like the uh, one on uh, 21st Street you had a few weeks ago. And I went home and I actually watched the DR hearing and I said, gee, I said, that, that has all the characteristics of a demolition. And it, it, as it turned out, it did. Um, and I would just say too that um, this isn't very interesting street because there's only two structures on that side of the street. And um, this was one of two up against Hawk Hill. Um, so let's look at the overhead, please. So these are the original demo calcs. This project did have demo calcs. And what's interesting um, is that the um, horizontal was 100%, but now it's only 77. Okay. The vertical was 42 and a half, so it wasn't quite up to the threshold as it is now at 94, above the threshold. So when you look at these, comparing the original with the current, what's interesting about the original is it was uh, it hit two, it hit one in each uh, of the thresholds. It hit B1 and it hit C2, and uh, now it's, it's hit all of them. So when I look at that, I think, well, maybe is that proof it was a demolition to begin with? Maybe is that proof that the calc should have been adjusted? Would you have caught it? at that time in 2018 and would a different outcome have happened? We don't know. Would it have been better outcome? If you look at the original house, it looks pretty livable. I sent you the photos from when it sold in 2012 for uh, $655,000. Would that have been a better outcome? I don't know. The DR requesters did talk about tenants. I don't know the story there. I would just say that um, this is a project like so many that did not uh, conform with policy 2.1 and policy 3.4 of the current uh, housing element, and those were intended to preserve housing. And here we are today, and I know you're going to approve it, and that's fine, but I think sometimes it's important to look back and see what happened as we look forward. Thank you very much. Okay, last call for public comment. Oh, let's go to our remote callers. Okay, this is Anastasia Ovanopoulos, member of San Francisco Tenants Union Land Use and Planning Watch Committee. I believe this falls into the category of a SB 330 type of uh, revision, you know, being that the, there's a UDG, UDU. And in that case, I would think that the, uh, the unit should be deed restricted. That means it's put on the deed. Thank you. Okay, final last call for public comment. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. 
If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed and this matter is now before you. Thank you, staff, uh, for bringing this project forward. I'll just make a few comments, maybe to kick off our discussion. Let's just start with just saying I'm supportive of the staff recommendation to approve the project with conditions, um, including uh, ensuring that the community liaison is included in the conditions. I think this project for me demonstrates the many challenges with our demo calcs. Um, and it's one of those things that I, I would love to talk with you at a later time, Director Hillis and Ms. Wadi, around the role that this policy plays or doesn't play in actually achieving its outcomes. Because to me, when I think about the demo calcs and what is intended to achieve as far as outcome is to preserve existing housing and to prevent its demolition, to per, kind of maintain whatever is perceived as the affordability of the housing. It's older, perhaps it's smaller, et cetera, reasons why it's, it's lower cost. And kind of also the design character of the neighborhood, preserve how things look and feel um, in a neighborhood, possibly prevent displacement of tenants. But it just strikes me that it just makes it harder for everybody, except for those who are very wealthy, who can afford to just have somebody make the calculations, improve the house, versus making it easier for everyone to modify homes. And we have other policies in place that I think can better achieve those outcomes than a complicated construction system that leads to, in my opinion, absolutely absurd tables that people are calculating and they're building something, finding damage, finding things that are very normal to find in an old house, and then having to have this whole process where it's years later and we're having this case. And then further, thinking about our budget, how do we want our planners to spend their time? Is this what we want them to be doing, looking at absurd, ridiculous, detailed tables and spending years bringing this project before us? That is not how I want planners spending their time. I think is a waste of our resources, an absolute, just an absolute waste of human capital to spend time either on our side or even on the architect side or the lawyer side to be having to come here with this. So if we're really going to have a talk about how we want to streamline things, what we want to do with our scarce resources, we really need to look at this. And I don't know what proportion of our staff time this makes up. It comes to the commission a lot. So it may just be like it's outsized for us that we see this and you're like, ah, eh, it's only a small fraction. It's fine. Um, so maybe the juice isn't worth the squeeze in terms of looking at it, but I just can't think of a worse way to spend time. So those are my comments. Uh, I'd like to ask a slightly different question. And I'm wondering why again and again and again we are running into these types of circumstances. If you have said you're long enough, this is probably case number 20, case number 30, case number 30, 40, where all of a sudden, although there was a very clear process of this commission reviewing the project and going through minor modifications, all of a sudden the building has disappeared altogether. Why is that happening? That is a question that I would like to ask because I'm frankly sick and tired of sitting here as Commissioner, uh, as President uh, Tanner just summarized, you're wasting everybody's uh, time. And I ultimately don't believe that this commission is the kind of mea culpa and we're gonna all make it all all right by approving something which should have caught uh, much earlier and there should be a different kind of accountability for that. I agree with you, Commissioner Warren. I would ask Mr. Horn, my understanding is that if we take the, the applicant's word for it, that, that they took down more walls, but the project isn't actually changing substantially. It's a matter of the calculation. So I just want to understand if I'm understanding that part better or if it's a combination of additional work beyond scope and the removal of walls, or if it's the removal of walls that led to the beyond scope, but it's substantially the same project, just with new walls instead of old walls. 
but the same walls. Correct. Yeah, Jeff Horn playing staff. Right. That's effectively correct. The amount of removal that occurred in the field did not match with the amount of removal that the plans showed that they were going to uh, was going to occur. The building, the plans are exactly the same as what were proposed. Uh, theoretically, if the developer had known the amount of the quantity being removed, they could have shown that on the plans at that time and maybe had this process of a CU hearing occur three or four years ago. Or theoretically, they also could have constructed the project according to what the plans did show. Although, the, again, that was not anticipating, again, any of the infield uh, difficulties that could have been found with uh, at the building site. We do have a process for that. Uh, product sponsors are supposed, well, when they do run into dry rot, uh, water damage in the field, you effectively are supposed to contact the building department. The building department would issue a violation and planning code section 317 explicitly says, if you have a violation for these damage elements, they don't count towards the removal calculations of section 317. That is how the process is, is currently uh, laid out. But overall, correct, the building that would be reconstructed or constructed based on the plans today is the exact same building that was approved by the planning department and seen by the planning commission several years ago. Thank you, Mr. Horn. And I'll just say for my part, I just, my personal opinion, which is not the subject of this, this case, is just like that is an absurd level of demolition and tension that other cities don't require. And if we're going to build 82,000 plus housing units in this city, we've got to dial this in. So that's my opinion. I'll call on Ms. Wadi. Um, uh, maybe you want to respond to something that's been said and then Commissioner Imperial and Commissioner yeah, Diamond. Yeah, and I think one of the other reasons where we see this a lot is at the planning level, we don't see construction documents typically. We are usually seeing architectural level of plans that don't go into construction documents. Um, most of the time in most other jurisdictions and in every other scenario of project that's not subject to 317, no one dictates what they call means and methods of construction. That really is up to the contractors to figure out how they're going to build the building according to building codes, but the, the exact way they approach the construction is not typically dictated by the city. This is the one sliver where we actually do dictate it, but we're not dictating it in the building code, we're dictating at planning. And so I think that's where often a lot of this disconnect ends up happening, is that we're dictating means and methods without construction documents, at a very early stage in the game and sort of that game of um, telephone, if you will, of relaying that information of, you know, this needs to get translated onto the construction documents. Construction documents often don't get relayed back to the planning department unless there's a change in scope between the construction documents and the site permit. And then relaying that from the folks doing the plan development to the people who are building in the field or the subcontractors, I think that's where a lot of the disconnect happens. It doesn't excuse it, but I think that's practically speaking what happened. Recently after this project, so this project, it looks like the it was originally issued um, in a roughly early spring of 2019. The building department did start implementing mandatory site inspections um, for any project that had a vertical addition to really explain to the people building in the field, hey, these are really unique controls in San Francisco. You need to keep these walls. Um, and so again, this is an instant construction takes so long in San Francisco that we are seeing today in the last few weeks projects that kind of experienced both their approvals and their problems many years ago. Um, and it just takes a while to remedy them. Um, and so we have put some things in place where we're not seeing these happen in 2022, projects that are breaking ground. Um, but we absolutely hear sort of your point, Commissioner Tanner, and I think we share a lot of the same sentiment. Thank you very much. We'll have Commissioner Imperial and then Commissioner Diamond. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I mean, looking into the section 317 and what it's trying to attain, I believe this was like back in 2009, um, yeah, around that time. And as I've become a commissioner here, and 317, the section 317 to me, now does not capture the intention of the 2009 at all. It becomes more of like enforcement or a violation of construction, you know, and that's where it becomes really problematic to us here in the planning department when I feel like there should be more in the building inspection commission, not us. Um, but so I think I, in that sense, um, President Tanner, I do share a sentiment in terms of re revisiting um, the goals of the Section 317, because what I'm seeing here is more on the violation side, not necessarily in the preserve of the affordability of the housing itself, because even when it's renovated, it's not, it never became affordable at this point. So um, in that sense, as we are also trying to look into the housing element, which we have tried to also, of course, there's gonna be demolition in that, but also in the essence of as well of, let's say, you know, UDU, if there are unauthorized dwelling unit in it, you know. I think we need to think about what do we do in terms of, you know, there is a preservation of affordability, which I think is captured as well in the housing element. So I'm, I'm also trying to look forward as well. How are we moving forward in the housing element with this goal of Section 317, and how is it actually being relayed on the ground as well? And um, whether you know there should be more of a um, more of a you know straightforward cap, you know. Um, but in terms of, let's say, ADU, those are the things that I think we've also been discussed. So I think um, it's also convoluted in my head as well, but I think we're gonna get there at some point. I think we need to have a special hearing on this and three, section 317 in connection to housing element, in connection to what's going on as we are seeing in the day-to-day -day because like, um, Vice President Moore, I'm also getting sick and tired. And I do think to um, President Tanner that it's become a waste of energy of the planning department um, for us to come back and try to legalize, um, I think has become more complicated than what than what it's supposed to be doing. So yeah. Thank you for that. Commissioner Diamond and then Commissioner Koppel. I'm gonna pile on and agree with Commissioner <laughs> Tanner. Um, I don't know what the intent was in 2009, but what we're seeing right now is that it's slowing down um, the production of housing, especially when we're, off, we're getting the legalization of a UDU. Um, we've added years, enormous costs and uncertainty. We live in a city with 100-year-old houses. I think it's obvious they're gonna find dry rot and water damage and mold and cracks in foundations. Um, and there's no way anyone's gonna produce the construction documents at the initial stages. They wanna make sure the project's gonna be approved. That's gonna come later. So whatever logic existed in 2009 is not playing out um, in a sensible fashion right now, given our need to produce 82,000 units. We ought to be doing everything we can to make the process really clear and that fits into how contractors actually do their work in our city. And I think if I recall correctly, one of the uh, objectives in the housing element was to take another look at 317. There yes. is language in there. Yeah. So I think we ought to elevate that 
to. I'm hoping that was one of the early things we were going to take on um, because it doesn't make sense. And we are seeing too many of these cases. It takes up staff time, commission time. You know, they're not exceeding the scope of the project. They're replacing walls that needed to be replaced. And to add a vast amount of process on because it exceeded what they thought was going to exist before they'd opened up the walls doesn't seem like good policy, you know, in our world today where we are, we need a lot more housing and we want to encourage people um, to, you know, if they've got to, to do the kind of work that's happening to produce more housing. So um, I, I guess the second question I would ask is that condition that the attorney was referring to as a standard condition, or do we really need to retain the ability to It's modify? a standard condition of approval that we usually have on every project. It's sort of a catch Again, since normally at this milestone, we don't see the architectural details. Um, it just sort of gives us the opportunity to refine it when we do get the architectural addenda referred to us. Okay. So but you, it's, we're not anticipating asking for design changes on this project. Okay. Thank you. Commissioner Koppel? Yeah, this isn't one of the worst ones we've seen, but um, <laughs> um, just like an, an, an overarching question, I mean, because we keep hearing the same process happen over and over again, and I'm just still really unclear on like where this all goes wrong. Let's just say we over-demo uh, or over-build exceeding the scope. There's a complaint. There's a stop work order. Who allows them to proceed? Why doesn't that come back in front of us? I mean, I think in a, in a lot of these instances, they're not bringing the building inspector onto the site saying, we think we've found something, we need to remove more. The contractor is just used to saying, oh, this is a dry rotted wall, of course it should not stay, I'm taking it down, and they aren't aware. And that's where these pre-inspections are actually helping to educate contractors to say, hey, in San Francisco, you can't do that. Even though ultimately you'll take down this wall, you need to first pause, you need to call us, we need to write something up. And, and that's the proper way to deal with it. But I think that's where often um, we see the problem happening is where people don't make that phone call to the inspector when they're going to need to exceed the scope of the demolition outlined on the plans. So that's a huge problem. And how is that allowed to just, how is that disregarded and people are just allowed to continue? I mean, ultimately, ultimately, the inspector identifies it, issues a notice of violation. Um, I, again, I think this goes back to some of the means and methods where contractors in other cities aren't as, uh, it's not as prescriptive, the amount of demolition that they're limited in doing. They're just saying, here's, here's the project that you're building, built it according to building code. Um, and they're not told, oh, you have to keep this wall, you have to not keep that wall if it's not in a historic district, typically in other jurisdictions. So I think a lot of times contractors are just seeing plans of the proposed project and they know how to build that project. Um, and, and I think... That's the problem. Again, I think this issue is really, um, we're not seeing this happen moving forward at this point. So again, we're seeing the projects that happened before we put new, new backstops into place. Um, so I'm not as concerned that we're gonna see projects two years from now that happened in 2022 or 2023, um, but it certainly has been a big problem. I wish I felt awesome hearing that. <laughs> I just don't. Yeah, we'll, we, we we'll keep see. hearing the same answers. We'll see. Um, I, I do see Mr. Gladstone, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to call on or Director Hillis, and I think we'll bring, be bringing this issue to a close hopefully soon. Yeah, but thank it, you. It's on our list. It's on our short-term list. I mean, we can come up with procedures on how to catch this better, you know, and communicate better with DBI, but to what end, right? It's, I think we all agree it's not achieving the policy objective it was set out to achieve was 
to make or to retain affordability, you can still expand, could still expand substantially, you could still renovate. It doesn't incentivize density, you know, it maximizing makes your renovation density. more expensive. So it makes it, it makes more uh, process. And yeah. the good news is we, we've thought through, and you have too, through RET originally that happened whatever eight years ago to the recommendations we made during fourplex. So we can bring this back to you relatively quickly. It's on our list once the housing element gets adopted to to, to try to resolve. Because it clearly, I think you're 100% right, it's not. The policy objective and what's actually happening do not agree. Not, not connected right now. Okay. Uh, any other commissioners, questions, comments, motions? Move to approve. Second. And that's with the uh, added condition, standard community liaison condition. Yeah. Very good, commissioners, on that motion then to approve with conditions as amended by staff to include the standard community liaison condition. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously seven to zero. Commissioners, that will place us on item 12 for case number 2016-011827 ENX for the property at 1515 15th Street. This is a large project authorization. Okay. All right. Good afternoon, Commissioners, Xin Yu Liang, Planning Department staff. The item before you is a large project authorization to permit a project greater than 25,000 square feet and over 75 feet in height in the UMU zoning district. The project will utilize the state density bonus program and request for waivers as well as incentives and concessions from the development standards. The proposal includes the demolition of the existing automotive sales and smoke check facility and new construction of an 11-story, 120-foot tall, 72,300-foot mixed-use building with approximately 2,900 square feet of ground floor commercial use, 189 group housing bedrooms, and 64 class one and six class two bicycle parking spaces. The project will also include the merger of two parcels. Under the state density bonus program, the project has requested two waivers from the planning code, including rear yard and building height to achieve the 50% density bonus and one concessions and incentives for open space to reduce housing cost. The project will provide 32 affordable group housing bedrooms. The inclusionary housing fee will apply to the bonus portion of the project and the subterranean um, residential floors. In terms of the outreach, the project sponsor started the outreach in November 2016 and has worked closely with USM, MEDA, and other community organizations in the Mission neighborhood. Since the project was continued last November, the project sponsor team has entered into a settlement agreement with USM that will provide a number of community benefits as well as a MOU with the Carpenters Union as well. Also, in working with the community, the design has been revised to include additional murals, street landscaping, public seating, etc. So far, the department has received three letters in support and 13 letters in opposition to the project. 
The opposition to the project is centered on the building height, shadow impact on surrounding buildings, neighborhood character, and no on-site parking spaces provided. In summary, the department finds the project is on balance, consistent with the mission area plan and objectives and policies of the general plan. The project will construct a new 11-story over-basement mixed-use building with ground floor retail and is within close proximity to public transportation, commercial corridors, and jobs. Additionally, the project will increase the city's housing stock by providing a total of 189 new group housing bedrooms, 32 of which will be designed as affordable rooms. This concludes staff presentation, and I'm available for questions. The project sponsor is also here and has prepared a presentation. Thank you. Good evening. If I could have the screen, please. Well, good evening. My name is Chris Elsie. I'm the steward or owner of the Prime Company. We're a vertically integrated development company, so we have in-house architects. Uh, we build our own projects as our own general contractor, and then we also have our own property management side of things. We currently have projects we're building in Los Angeles. We do uh, development throughout the country. We're currently building projects in Los Angeles, San Diego, and in Denver next to a TOD stop. Uh, we're excited about the project property here in the Mission District. Um, as Sin, you mentioned, it's a vibrant community. It's currently a surface parking lot. It's a corner lot. Um, we're actually leasing it to um, a business just up the street, and they're just using it for uh, auxiliary parking for their business. Our uh, design objective uh, for the development was affordability by design. We do have a mandatory 25% uh, affordability component but as uh, through our community outreach this is kind of what we first went to the community with and we've been working and pounding out this MOU agreement for a significant amount of time but we basically ended up on uh, we're going to offer the remaining units a first right of refusal to the San Francisco Housing Authority and where they can utilize the Housing Choice Voucher Program uh, to help facilitate uh, affordable housing. And so USM, um, United to Save the Mission and their different organizations, they have been made aware of that, they're supportive of that, and then they can, uh, that's kind of the funding mechanism behind those. And in addition to the MOU agreement um, and the Housing Choice Voucher Program that we're using, we did work extensively with them uh, on just the physical design of the project as well. And as you can see, um, there's uh, what was the left is kind of what we first brought them. And then uh, we think I'm happy with what our architects and the community worked with there. Uh, we did have a reduction in unit count. Uh, we added some murals. There is, um, as a part of our agreement, we're offering uh, reduced rent for the active ground floor retail spaces. Um, and so that's some of, there's also murals around there, uh, but those would be community, uh, USM would help, is going to send us the, a list of businesses that we can select from for that. 
Uh, you can see the two murals on the facades there along 15th and South Van S. And then the community open space requirement, uh, we basically have three full levels of community space, so it's about 10 times what the required amount is. And then there's also um, communal kitchens, full kitchens on each floor. This is some, there's actually a great view towards the downtown, there will be. This is some of the community spaces. And then these are the individual units. They're completely self-contained. They have a, you know, their own bathroom. They have a kitchenette that does have a convection microwave in it and a stovetop. And so I'll turn it over to John and he can discuss the state density law bonus. Thank you, commissioners. John Kevlin here with the project sponsor. Uh, just to cover a couple other aspects of the project, it is in the Mission neighborhood, so it's subject to the highest affordable housing in the city, 25%. Um, this results for this project, 19 units that will be rented out at $1,000 a month, so some of the lowest rent in the city. Uh, and just a reminder, this building has amenities well beyond the typical apartment building being built today, as, as Chris mentioned. So this is really more than just the units. Um, the project is eligible for a 50% density bonus. Uh, it allows another 63 units to be built on site. Um, the project seeking the typical rear yard and height waivers. I did want to speak to the open space um, incentive concession. Um, about 5,000 square feet of open space is required. 3,600 is provided on the roof, which is code compliant. And then there's another 1,200 in the central courtyard that is open outdoors. It doesn't mean the, meet the sun angle, um, uh, sun plane angle requirements, so it's not technically code compliant. But if you add those two together, we're about 100 short of the actual requirement. So we're pretty close as it is. Um, and then finally, again, we've got uh, a significant amount of interior community space, well above what a typical apartment building in today uh, in San Francisco has today. So thank you, commissioners. We're here if you have any questions. Thank you. We should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this matter. If you're in the chambers, please come forward and line up on the screen side of the room. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three if you're on WebEx. Raise your hand. <clears throat> Go ahead. Good evening, President Tanner, members of the San Francisco Planning Commission. My name is Guillermo Chacon. I'm a lifetime resident of San Francisco. I went to Notre Dame Elementary School, Mission Dolores, and I graduated from Archbishop Reardon High School. I'm here today in support of the 1500 15th Street project. As a carpenter, I was fortunate to have excellent journeymen and journey persons to instill good work happens in me, make sure that I was growing every day with my building knowledge, and finally, eventually, learning how to interpret blueprints and using that applied mathematics to complete these beautiful projects that we work on as carpenters. As I gained these skills, I've been a carpenter for seven years and I was building these skills. I was working steady, you know, and I was really proud of being a carpenter. I was a good provider for my family and, you know, let me calm down a little bit. I have a son with special needs, but being a carpenter wasn't a problem. I had excellent benefits, didn't have a problem finding a specialist to help me and my child. But March, 
16, 2020 came and I got laid off with a lot of other carpenters. Being I was, I was unable to provide for my family financially. My marriage started to become strained and just recently it failed. I had to leave my home to alleviate the tension in my home. Now my, my wife is a single mother and I'm currently squatting in an in-law off Mansell Street in District 10. I look forward to gaining one of the hundreds of construction jobs and opportunity to work in the community where I, where I live and where I can at least participate with my family. As a resident of San Francisco, I encourage you to move forward with this project as quickly as possible. Thank you. All right, so I guess my time. Well, good afternoon, President Tanner and fellow uh, commissioners. There you go, perfect, thank you. Let me bend that, there we go. All right, well, good afternoon, President Tanner and commissioners. Thank you for allowing me to speak today. Now, my name is Christian Tercios. I'm a resident of San Francisco, born and raised, and I'm an apprentice carpenter with Local 22. And currently, I'm on the ready to work list. I'm speaking in favor of the 1515th Street project, the development project. Now, LC Partners, they're more than committed to bringing signatory contractors, which means union work for all the people and the residents of, you know, the city. And we've been having a problem here with, you know, um, you know um, just making, making money and the, the middle class, basically. We've been losing the middle class out here. And with this, with this project right here, this would really bring that back in the right direction. And come on, 1000 a month? That's amazing. Like, for real. This this off script, but man, come on. All right, on track. But it's, this will provide me with some amazing training for real. Like I need this. Like I'm out of work. This give me work, and I can get the, these things for my retirement. Build up all these skills. It'll be amazing for me. Now I'm in full support of this project, and you know all my other carpenters with me. They're in full support as well, and I would like you guys to be with me in that step. Because come on, man, we need this. But y'all have an amazing day. Thank you. Hi. Good afternoon, um, President Tanner and Commission. Um, I know it's been a long day. Hi, my name is Damika Johnson. I am a carpenter, first period apprentice. Um, I was grateful to be a part of the first all women's um, apprentice program. And a graduate of that, for I know it's not really no other women here represented, but I represent for all of us sisters in the Brotherhood of Carpentry. And um, I've been on the out of work list. I'm a San Francisco native, um, and I'm full support of this. You know, um, I know how it is to be homeless. Um, I used to live in the van with my husband, and um, I got a, I happened to get a low income place right there on 16th Mission. So. I understand what this would mean to someone like me who's been through that. And the rent is the, the same, like $1,000, it's, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. And I would love to be, to put the skills that I've learned to use, you know, to say that I built this. I was a part of helping people get off the streets, helping the people have affordable housing. I would love to be a part of building that. To, you know, to show my skills. I've been on the out of work list since I graduated last September. And it's a lot of good carpenters with 
We have a lot of skills and we'll be ready to put them to use and we would love to be a part of this. You know, so I implore you to, to, get, to, to please approve this project. It will help a lot of people, to help San Francisco, to help a part of the homelessness. So, thank you. Uh, good afternoon, President, or good evening now, President Tanner, and members of the San Francisco Planning Commission. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak today. My name is Daniel Gregg. I'm the senior organizer at NorCal Carpenters Union Local 22 here in San Francisco, representing approximately 4,000 carpenters in San Francisco and 37,000 throughout Northern California. The members of NorCal Carpenters Union Local 22 in San Francisco and surrounding Bay Area strongly support the Prime Company's proposed development at 1515th Street. This project will create much needed union construction jobs that pay living wages and benefits and provide opportunity for our local apprentices to begin or continue their career in construction. The existing use at 1515th Street is a surface parking lot. This kind of infill is critical to create new spaces for people to work and or live and done right will add to San Francisco's distinctive identity. This proposed development will bring a much needed 189 workforce housing units with 25% inclusionary affordable housing. The Prime Company is a new player in San Francisco and is willing to invest in this city. They have not only made a commitment to use a, a union general contractor for this project, but as an owner builder made the decision to partner with the NorCal Carpenters Union in recognition of the quality and standards that the prime company intends to achieve in San Francisco and that only a union general contractor can deliver. Right now we are emerging from a global pandemic and a significant downturn in the economy. Construction is the second largest industry in the world next to healthcare. It is important that we support developers who support labor and the community. NorCal Carpenters Union Local 22 is excited to support the proposed development of 1515th Street for their dedication to San Francisco, the community, and union labor. Thank you for your time and service, and we ask that you approve this project. Okay, last call for public comment on this item. Seeing no additional requests to speak, Commissioner's public comment is closed. This matter is now before you. Thank you. Um, I did have a few questions for the project sponsor. I'm just one of the things I was curious about in the project was what seemed to be like a well. I guess just generally, if you've built other um, other similar projects in terms of group housing in some of your other cities, you mentioned. Yeah, we have a student housing background, and so we have uh, probably our sim most similar project would be a 258 unit project that we did in Columbus, Ohio. Okay, because I'm just curious about the um, the design seems makes a lot of sense. We've seen, I think, a fair number of group housing proposals in the last few years here, but the gym space seemed pretty large, and I just wondered if you find that to be the amenity that folks most want versus more kind of like living space or storage spaces or other things that you decided to to program with the the gym space. Just curious about that. Yeah, if I mean, just in pooling our residents, we found that that is we found that to be true that everybody's kind of workout crazed and so that's been the most i mean if you just go by any like even like our swimming pools and all those different things like the thing that actually gets used the most is a, a gym space even if it's relatively simple so okay, cool. thank you very much are there other comments or questions commissioner ruiz yeah thank you i have one question for the project sponsor so i saw the um 
outreach to the community groups. I saw Brilliant Corners was included, Mercy Housing. And I was just hoping you could speak more to the right of first refusal and how that will work. You know, what were the discussions with the community groups? Is there, you know, a separate agreement on, on how that will work just to get an insight on, on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's not a specific, um, so the MOU is specifically with USM, and then so USM kind of disseminates it from there to someone like um, Brilliant Corners or whoever and makes them aware of the program, and then they can effectively kind of source residents that can, what we're really committing to is accepting the housing choice vouchers through the, the San Francisco Housing Authority. And so they're free to kind of recommend. And so every unit that comes up, we will we'll send it to USM, then they'll disseminate it to you know various organizations, uh, like there was the Native American folks that we're talking to, um, the, to uh, different organizations that they know. And then not only that, so if once they live there and then once they, when somebody would potentially move out, it, it goes in perpetuity. So we would go back to them and give that first right of refusal to them, so. Great, thank you so much. Other comments, questions, or motions? Commissioner Moore. I think this, I think this project uh, has gained an attractiveness because of the strong community involvement and the concessions that were made. I'm very, very happy that you were able to really stand in that battle and come to a mutually uh, agreeable solution. Uh, I'm prepared to uh, make a motion to approve the project with conditions. Second. Seeing no further deliberation, commissioners, there is a motion that has been seconded to approve with conditions. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commission President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously, seven to zero. <laughs> Commissioners, that will place us under your discretionary review calendar for your final item on today's agenda, number 13. If you can please, we still have some business to conduct. Please exit quietly. Thank you. For case number 2022-003961-DRP for 1564 Green Street, discretionary review. Again, as requested, if you could leave quietly, we would certainly appreciate it. Good evening, Commissioners. David Winslow, Staff Architect. The item before you is a public initiated request for discretionary review of building permit application number 2022 315 .0056 to construct a fourth story horizontal addition to a four story two family building. Existing building is a category B potential historic resource built in 1924. The DR requester, Sharish Malikar of 1570 Green Street, the property to the east of the project, is concerned that the project will affect views, light, and privacy. His proposed alternatives are to maintain the current height and to eliminate the kitchen window, uh, the kitchen and window on the west side. To date, the department has received no letters in support nor letters in opposition. Uh, staff supports the proposed addition as it complies with both the residential design guidelines and the building, uh, the planning code. Um, the addition moderates the scale at the street with a 10-foot 
front setback and low ceiling height behind a, an existing parapet to render the addition virtually um, minimally visible from the street. The addition also reciprocates the setback of the adjacent building of the DR requester with a four and a half foot setback on the west. The DR requester has a similar fourth story with high clear story windows facing the subject property at the fourth floor, ensuring adequate privacy. The location of the proposed windows in the relation to the DR requester's windows and doors are such that adequate privacy is maintained. Therefore, staff doesn't see any exceptional or extraordinary circumstances and recommends approving. Thank you. With that uh, DR, DR requester, you have five minute presentation. My name is uh, Shirish Malakar. I'm the neighbor where the construction is going to be happening. And I was told that I could bring some photos and. Yeah, you can just go ahead and plug that into the computer. I'll pause your time while you get that up. Yes, good evening. My name is Dan Miski, and I uh, represent uh, uh, Shirish Malakar as his architect. This one. SFGov, can we go to the computer? Okay. Okay, so I've drawn uh, a collage uh, based on the architect's uh, submission. And uh, what I'm trying to, the elevations are turned this way so it projects the plans properly. And uh, the two red view corridor is what I'm uh, trying to display there is the window. Uh, it's a uh, seven foot window by six foot high and it uh, directly views into uh, uh, Sharish's bedroom and his bathroom. So what we're suggesting uh, also, do we have the other plan, other picture? Oh, you mean the photo? Yeah, the photos. Yeah, this one kind of shows the same view, uh, where we're sitting from the window looking into the bedroom and then into the bathroom, which is in the back there. So what we're uh, hoping is that window can be taken away. They still have the view uh, completely to the bay and to the bridge and all that. And that whole back wall of the north side is all glass. So this window it projects to the west. And uh, uh, as I say, it invades the privacy uh, of uh, Sharice Manikar. Thank you. Does that conclude your presentation? Does that conclude your presentation? Yes. In that case, project sponsor, you have five-minute presentation. I mean, I'm sorry, I could make a few more comments. I mean, there's also effect on shadows and lights and privacy and just general noise and other concerns and additional I mean, kitchen on the third floor as well. So those are some of my other concerns. Thank you. Does that conclude your presentation now? Yes, for now. Thank you. Project sponsor, you have five minutes.
Good evening. My name is Alex Hachia, project sponsor, and this is designer. Oh, hello, my name is Joaquin Kilit. Thank you for hearing us. Um, we hear his concerns about the privacy. However, I think what's not represented in, in the diagram is you have to have your head up against the window and looking towards the bedroom in order for that to be accurate. And that's not what we want to see. We want to see the Golden Gate Bridge, um, which he enjoys too from his windows on the west side. Uh, that window that he's referring to is at the very edge of the property. Um, and it's very unlikely that anyone will stand at that window and look back at his property. Um, we, and we asked our designer to take his privacy and his view site into account when we were designing this project. We, this was not, a, the project was not a result of going back and forth with uh, the, the permitting. We proactively scaled the project back we, main, we observed the setback, and we didn't include an entire wall of glass to be respectful of our neighbor. So this permit application was the result of a lot of proactive and us trying to be conscientious about the neighborhood. And um, we, don't, we have no intention of being noisy. We um, are just two, this is also a project sponsor, we're just two professionals who bought a building that was in disrepair and we're trying to make it our own home. Um, I think that concludes our response. Yeah. We don't really have much else to say. Well, uh, I, I prepare um, a drawing. I don't know if this can be projected. Uh, oh, I guess it has to be in this direction. All right. There it goes. So uh, I prepared the same study similar to what they did. Uh, their drawing is pretty off scale, uh, off proportion, I would say. Uh, I don't know if it's enough scale to see this, but uh, the, the, the windows, corner to corner, are 15 feet away. And the most important thing to understand is glass becomes a mirror uh, any, any further at 45 degrees. Uh, but especially the, the, the glass that he's used in his, uh, in his window, and this, these photos are provided by him, even looking straight down in, into the window, you cannot see inside. It's, it's completely reflective. Um, so if we look, if we look, at, the, if we look at the our direction of view, uh, this two by four here represent what it will be our corner of the building right here. So our window will be right here. And at this angle, it's absolutely impossible to see inside his house. Not that we will we'll ever want that. Uh, and I, I think that, yeah. Hello, thank you for your time tonight. Um, I think that, uh, you know, as Alex said, we are being very conscientious in trying to be good neighbors and also enjoy, you know, the view of the water and the bridge that we all love here in San Francisco. Um, and we'll just answer any questions from here. Very good. If that Th thank you very much. Your, if that concludes your presentation, members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this matter. I don't see anybody else in the chambers, uh, but if there is, please come forward. There is no one on our remote access line, so do you request here you have a two-minute rebuttal? 
Yeah. I know it's been a long day, and uh, I don't want to extend your day any further. Uh, but what I want to say is uh, the photo was taken right from where the where, where the gentleman showed, the architect showed, the story pole is. It, it looks directly into my bedroom. The first half of the bedroom is totally visible. And also, it shows the toilet from that particular space. So I took three different photographs from that edge that he was talking about, a couple of feet in and two more feet in. In all those three angles, you can clearly see into my not only private space, but the private bathroom. So I'm not asking them to not to complete the project, just respect the privacy and not have to have this six by seven foot window that completely destroys the privacy. They could raise the windows to a certain height if they want to get some sunlight and stuff. I'm not opposed to that. I'm opposed to having this large window that's completely destroying my privacy. The only thing that I would add is the picture that I just saw from the story polls is taken further back in the room. So if you're further back from the room, it makes the glass plane uh, of the adjoining property more skew. If you're right up against the window, of course, your angle is not as askew and you're looking more straight on. And that's why the picture that we took right from the window looks directly into the bedroom and into the bathroom. Okay, project sponsor, you have a two minute rebuttal if you need it. Uh, just to quickly respond to these comments, uh, I think I, I hear correct that you say that we can see your bathroom. Uh, so those are some photos of the interior of his bedroom. I think it's, uh, if you look at the proportion, it's very different to what, what they show. The bed is really far back and the bathroom is uh, in this back. There's no way we can see the bathroom, uh, not even if they leave the door open. Uh, and also, the, the reason that this photo is taken slightly back is so I can show this. If I put the camera there, it will be no reference. Uh, but mathematically, the angle is 57. So he actually should have more transparency looking into us that we will ever have looking into his. Uh, that's physics. It's, it's literally impossible to see inside this house. Uh, I don't know what else to add. Sorry, thank you. Thank you. With that, commissioners, that concludes this um, discretionary oh. review. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I'll just say windows work both ways. Encourage people to get curtains if they don't want people looking into their windows. Commissioner Koppel. Mm. Make a motion to not take DR and approve. Second. Seeing no further deliberation, commissioners, there's a motion to not take DR and approve with as proposed, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously 7 to 0. Thank you, Commissioners. We are adjourned.